This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Good morning, crypto. Good morning, Warriors. Hello and welcome back to another episode of your favorite crypto news channel, Good Morning Crypto, where we bring you the most relevant and impactful crypto-related topics from some of the top crypto researchers in the world. I'm your host, Abs, joined by several members of our 3T family this morning. We got Gonzo, also known as Super G, in the building, Johnny, aka the Italian Stallion, and today we have a very special guest. A renowned developer in the crypto community, known for his unique energy and the ability to make the complex simple. He's been coding since he was a sophomore in high school and has completed code on both the XRPL and the XDC blockchains. A brilliant young mind in the space. Crypto Club or Coins Club Crypto is in the building, ladies and gentlemen, also known as Quincy. So I'm very excited for today's show. Today on Good Morning Crypto, we'll be discussing how decentralized applications are built to change the world with two of our favorite currencies standing at the forefront while the derivatives applications are yet to take advantage of this new emerging market. The greatest shift in generational wealth is already upon us, and we ask our special guests to break down the details, deciding what's most important for our listeners to focus on during this unique opportunity. Our show is available on your favorite podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Music. And for those of you listening via podcast, our show is live on YouTube, Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. Eastern at the 3T Warrior Academy channel. So Super G, you're at the top of my screen, so the pressure is on you, my friend. We've got a great episode prepared, and I have my notebook right here to take notes. So I'm excited. How are you feeling, my friend? Good morning. Good morning, everybody. I'm feeling great, man. I'm just feeling very grateful. It's nice to have Quincy on. I remember when I first started my journey in crypto, I came across his channel, and I just remember thinking like, damn, this kid is a genius. Super technical. So I'm telling everybody, get your pad and paper out, take notes, because I know I'm going to be watching this show a couple times just to get all the little nuggets. But super excited. It's going to be a crazy day today. A lot of volatility, right? The FOMC meeting is in a few hours. Uh, you know, it looks like Bitcoin's at 28.6. They probably have a little bit of inside info. It's probably moving a little bit. Uh, and then tomorrow is the Arbitrum airdrop. So yeah, it's going to be a great show. Awesome, guys. And Quincy, Johnny Crypto just jumped off the screen. So we're skipping his introduction and going straight to you, my friend. Uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for making time to educate our community and speak to us on air, because I think there's a lot of things that you're able to inform people on that maybe we don't get that technical aspect on our channel. So I'm really excited to dive into the technicals today. How you feeling, my friend? And thank you for making time for us. I'm feeling amazing. Thank you for having me on here. I love the, I love to talk about these technologies all day long. If I really could, I'd probably be spending all day talking in front of a brick wall because I love to talk about these so much. Um, and I love that people are able to get a lot of value in terms of my perspective. I feel like there's a, I feel like there's a lot of uh, finance talk in the space and there's a lot of price talk in the space and a lot of people don't really get a chance to see the perspective from a developer. And I do understand that a lot of developers are kind of like a little awkward, a little dorky and don't really know how to really break it down. And I never even consider myself to be that great at breaking it down, but it's apparently so. So I'm really glad that you're able to get a lot of value out of this. And I'm really glad to be here to be able to not only educate the space, but give my perspective as well as be able, nothing, not just my perspective as just someone in the space, but my perspective as a developer as a whole in terms of how I can use the technologies, how I can see others using the technologies and how we can move forward with the adoption of these networks. 
Absolutely. Really cool. And we're going to dive into it today. But before we do that, we're going to start off the show the same way we always do by showing you our Good Morning Crypto Twitter account. That's at 3TGM Crypto on Twitter. We're at 3,152 followers. Go smash that follow button. We love talking to you. The Bitcoin Fear and Greed Index is in moderate greed this morning, sitting at a 62. And for good reason, as it's been a bullish day, uh, as, actually, as it's bullish across the board. We've got Algorand up 6%, ADA up 9%, and Chainlink up about 5%. When we check out the total coin market cap, we are sitting at 1.19 trillion in total market cap. Bitcoin is 47% dominance. Ethereum is about 18%. We've got Bitcoin sitting at 28,600. Ethereum, 1,800. XRP is 44 cents. And Quant Network, we're going to scroll right down to that, sitting at 129. So Quincy, while we got you on the show, we're going to skip past the general, the general notion of this market and dive right into the details. So Let's start off on a little bit of a curveball here. So originally we talked about central bank digital currencies and how they're a negative, right? This is something that not only we don't want or we're not advocates for in the United States, we've discussed how this currency and this technology should be banned. And But you have a different take. So I just wanted to give you the open floor as to what you see as, a, as an advantage to a CBDC and why you don't think that technology should be outlawed. Yeah, so I see a lot. I see a lot of different perspectives around. Well, first, let me ask real quick. Uh, am I sounding all right? Just to be, just to double check real quick. It's a, it's a little bit better, but we'll get it going. We'll we'll figure it out throughout the show. All right, cool, cool, cool. Um, yeah, the biggest thing I end up seeing is there's this overarching notion of this ideology around CBDCs, which I totally understand. The broader vision of how not only do regular people see CBDCs, but how governments see CBDCs, and there are a few different approaches that you can take to this. Um, one, for the most part, is you can see that these can be used as a means of being able to uh, have a live audit of a broader economy, being able to show the overall arching amount of growth, being able to actually like live track GDP growth in real time, as well as be able to see how different engagements and different parties can engage with each other. But at the same time, there's sort of this element of, well, if they can do all this, what are the other things that they could do with this? And obviously, you can go as, in many directions with that in terms of like, well, you know, is this a means of being able to control the people of a, of a certain society? Is this a means of being able to have some element of, of is this a means of having some element of overarching economic control or is this more of a liberating means of being able to understand how an economy, how an economy works in real time? And I think you can go in either direction with this, but in terms of the technical standpoint, I actually think CBDCs might actually be sort of the uh, bridge in terms of being able to allow regular users to be able to interact with blockchain networks in a manner in which that they don't necessarily have to hold a ton of these tokens to be able to do so. Uh, one thing I like to sort of articulate quite a bit is in order for people to be able to interact with different blockchain technologies, they essentially need to, uh, in order for people to interact with different blockchain technologies, they essentially need to go to an exchange and buy some crypto, set up a crypto wallet, whether it's a browser wallet, whether it's a uh, software wallet, whatever it may be. And they essentially jump through these different hoops to be able to interact with these uh, different technology stacks. And I think CBDCs can essentially be the glue to allow regular people to interact with blockchain technologies in the same way that you would interact with any other website or any other app through like your Google account. Normally when you go into an application, you may log in with Google, you may log in with Apple, you may log in with Facebook, whatever it may be. And I think you may be able to interact with dApps in the same way using CBDCs uh, in such a manner in which the bank or whatever sort of financial institutions is the ones that's managing the liquidity to interact with these networks, rather than you not allowing you not to have to go to these different exchanges to be able to buy these tokens, to be able to interact with these applications. And I think that can actually open up the door for a huge means of adoption simply based on the notion that you can log in with your bank account to interact with any dApp the same way that you log in with your Google to interact with any website. <laughs> Just follow up with you there because we showed an interesting video yesterday from the founder of Circle, also known as USDC, stating that this is one step towards a United States stablecoin. So I want to play this short 50 second clip here and we're going to go right back to you, Quincy. Here we go. Now I'm seeing sort of the, the end state vision 
And I'm almost wondering if that end state vision for Circle and USDC is something like a proxy central bank digital currency. Okay. Like I know we're steps before that here and maybe I'm getting too ahead of myself, but it just feels like that vision of like, we shouldn't have commercial bank, I'll call it protocol risk because we have crypto here. It should just be one-to-one with a T-bill. It shouldn't take any risk of the banking sector. So I want to focus on the technical side of this. We criticized them for trying to nationalize banking yesterday, Quincy, stating that bringing the Federal Reserve closer to the retail investor, it doesn't solve the liquidity problems that we're dealing with today. But I want to focus on what he said about USDC and just the broader spectrum of is this one one step towards a centralized digital currency? And what does that mean to you? Is the technology even there to launch an application like a CBDC? Um, I think the technology is there uh, potentially. I mean, I'm not one of these, I'm not like working at the Fed or working at the Treasury to be able to sort of like speak on that as a whole. But in terms of like the broader technology, in terms of its capabilities, it's definitely there. The real question would be like, what would be the main use of it? Like I said, is it to maximize efficiency in a broader economy or is it to have like better overarching like bird's eye view control of everyone in that economy? You know, your guess is just as good as mine. The biggest thing that I can end up seeing is people being able to uh, interact with different participants in a more seamless and efficient manner. Now, this can mean a lot of different things. I think the average user, outside of the whole DAP idea that I articulated earlier, the average user may just see that they may be able to make overnight payments, fees may be cheaper, uh, they may be able to do a few things in their financial services that are a bit different than they are now, um, and they may end up being a bit cheaper. And I think that's mostly going to be your average user's interaction with something like a CBDC. But like I said, your guess is a good of mine in terms of uh, what that overarching vision would be in terms of uh, the use of a CBDC in a broader economy. Absolutely, guys. And we got 437 live listeners joining us. Show us some love. Smash that like button. And Quincy, they're giving you a hard time for your microphone. But at the end of the day, we can still hear you. So it's okay. We're going to get the good information out of you today. And I want to start with this update that we got from Swift Networks and some of the connections we've seen to XDC throughout the couple past couple of weeks. Swift is currently working on a pilot operating on the XDC network to faster enhance payments. And I just wanted to give you the open floor because there's a bunch of specifics that we're going to dive into. But can you speak a little bit to the connections that XDC has to other banks such as JP Morgan? And then specifically, we got the Swift connection here. So, yeah, uh, XDC is a technology that's used all across the all across the globe. Uh, primarily, you're seeing a lot of adoption in Singapore right now. I'm not necessarily sure how much adoption we're seeing in the United States, but we're seeing uh, quite a bit of adoption in Singapore, in Europe, and a lot of the Asian nations. Uh, one of the biggest goals of, of the XTC network, at the very least of a lot of the participants on the XTC network, is to be able to engage in automated trade finance with not only just with the participants that are traditionally using these technologies, but also be able to allow for excess liquidity and access to other participants through an internet connection rather than through a series of broker dealers or series of wealth management or whatever it may be to be able to interact with these parties. Uh, One thing that people sort of overlook a lot in terms of blockchain is now you're able to engage in different financial services simply by having a internet connection rather than having to go through a series of brokers. Where in a traditional world, in order to be able to have access to different clients, in order to have access to different partners and parties, you would essentially have to go through a myriad of different third-party brokers to be able to have access to them. Where on the SEC network, we're trying to focus on the notion of being able to interact with those different parties simply through the internet. And as long as you're all operating on the network, you can all engage with each other, whether it's a client, whether it's another party that wants to be able to exchange in these assets, whatever it may be, it's supposed to maximize efficiency. So we're seeing a huge adoption in terms of all over the world. Uh, obviously, we sort of had the we sort of had the question of what type of adoption are we going to see in the United States, what type of regulation we're going to see in the United States, and we're very much doing everything we can to push on that. 
But as for the whole, uh, the entire world is basically adopting the technology in such a manner in which it's allowed them to make their processes a lot more efficient and a lot quicker and cheaper than they otherwise would be. And simply able to do so with an internet connection rather than what brokers have access to what clients or what brokers have access to what parties to be able to engage in that trade finance. So you brought up something interesting before the show, and we talked about it just briefly, but I want to elaborate on it while we're on air. You said that each different blockchain focused on compatibility is going to have their own portion of the financial internet. So you basically stated if XDC is processing payments, XRP can be used for liquidity, and all of these different currencies can have use cases. But you said what what people should be focusing on, the average retail investor, is decentralized applications. And what many of us are focusing on is the token specifically. So can you elaborate there and explain why decentralized applications are actually more important than the value of some of these tokens? Yeah, actually, I would even argue that the blockchain, whether whatever blockchain it may be, the applications that can persist on these blockchains is significantly more valuable than the token itself. The token is a means of being able to move value, but the blockchain itself is a means of being able to host data, whether that's essentially using it as a database and accounting tool in terms of whether it's financial data, whether it's being able to use it as a means of running an application, whether it's like the next Facebook or next Twitter, whether it's a means of being able to create a new, uh, a new means of monetization for applications. So instead of a subscription or an ad model, you may have a paper execution model because every blockchain operates off the notion of being able to send a transaction, pay some basic transaction fee, and then interact with the network. You can have applications that operate in that same capacity too. And with that, you can essentially have applications that would traditionally, whether it's a cloud environment or a traditional web two environment, we have to spend hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in hosting costs to scale that application worldwide. These blockchains are already doing that in terms of running their, and running their own decentralized infrastructure. So you can have applications that can essentially scale worldwide to millions of users without essentially having to pay any uh, hosting costs, but they may pay an execution cost. And that execution cost may end up being significantly cheaper than the traditional hosting cost, in which you can see now applications scale it to millions of users uh, in terms of not essentially having to manage their own infrastructure. And that is, in my opinion, huge. If I was to build an application and there's Web 2 and there's Web 3, and I have to spend uh, so much time, energy, and money in terms of the availability, which is basically making sure I have enough servers that don't go down, the scalability to make sure that people have access to those servers. So, you know, putting servers in the United States, in Europe, in China, or, or Japan, whatever it may be, uh, the blockchain already does that in terms of being able to be highly available and highly scalable in terms of being able to access anywhere around the world, in which I don't necessarily have to manage that infrastructure and I can focus primarily on the application. And it ends up being a lot cheaper for me because I'm only paying execution costs rather than, pay than paying to literally host each individual server. So users can have access to my application. I think you're actually going to end up seeing applications that are significantly more profitable, significantly more scalable, and um, or significantly more profitable, significantly more scalable, and a, have a means of being able to access more users a lot quickly than traditional applications may be. And with that, I think you're going to end up seeing uh, applications blow up way faster than they ever could before. Because like I said, if you're a Web2 application and you're trying to scale out to, I think a good example would be like Uber. If I'm, a, if I'm Uber and I'm essentially building an application, in order for users to have a good means of interacting with that application, I would have to set up servers in every region in which people are going to use uh, Uber. Well, if I'm able to use the blockchain, the blockchain essentially scales worldwide simply based off the notion of these different node operators running their independent nodes everywhere in the world. I don't necessarily need to set up that infrastructure. I can focus on the application itself. And since I don't have to focus on that infrastructure, it ends up being a lot cheaper for me. I'm paying execution costs rather than hosting costs which can save me millions of dollars in the long run. And I can scale up to millions of users solely based on the user's ability to interact with the application through an execution fee rather than how many servers I can spin up at one time. So Quincy, one of the questions that the live chat's asking right now is, can you give some examples of, of decentralized applications? I know you just referenced Uber, but one of the things that I'm having trouble conceptualizing in my mind 
is why would somebody be incentivized to develop a, a decentralized application and not profit in perpetuity off of that instead of creating something like an Uber where they can get a mar much larger portion of the profit on the back end? That's just my, my open question there. Well, actually, one of the biggest things is the payment layer and the application layer are now one layer. Every application in Web2 has its servers running its app and then has its payment processor, whether it's PayPal, whether it's Visa, whether it's whatever payment processor, and those have a set of fees as well as their traditionally pretty, pretty slow. Now, the biggest thing is not only A, can you have the applications be significantly cheaper in terms of processing those fees, you know, paying at least in the SEC network 10,000 of a cent uh, rather than a 2% fee as a payment processing fee. But also since now the application layer and the payment layer are now in one, you have a simple means of being able to monetize these applications in which I like to call pay for execution. So traditionally, when you have a Web2 application, you're either going to make money from subscriptions or from ads. You would make money from subscriptions in terms of having so many users that interact with your application, they subscribe and that gives them access to that application. And over the course of so many given months, they're going to pay the subscription fee to interact with that app. Now, in the more other traditional method is advertisements in which the more users that interact with an application, you're essentially going to try to uh, harvest as much data to be able to pitch to advertisers in terms of them being able to market to different demographics. And then the advertisers pay you to be able to interact with those demographics. With blockchain technology, you can essentially have a means of having a pay for execution model, or maybe the uh, the execution of the network fee may be one ten thousandth of a cent, but the application fee may be one tenth of a cent or one hundredth of a cent. And that essentially may be a means in which they're able to be more profitable solely based off the engagement of the application without essentially compromising the uses of the application with ads while simultaneously giving users more, more bang for their buck in terms of only paying for what they use rather than paying for, for, for a subscription. And the traditional means, if you pay for a subscription, whether it's Spotify, whether it's whatever it may be, uh, unless you use that application to the maximum degree in which you can use it, you're essentially leaving money on the table. You're, you know, if you, well, if you use Spotify and you listen to, you know, two or three songs a month, well, you're paying an entire subscription for two or three songs a month, where you can essentially have a blockchain version of it, a blockchain version of whatever, in which you only pay for what you engage with. So it ends up being a lot cheaper for the user, but actually a lot more profitable for the applications, as well as users being a lot more likely to interact with these applications because they're only paying for what they use in the form of a hundredth of a cent, a tenth of a cent, half a cent, a penny, whatever it may be, uh, simply because they have to pay a network transaction fee anyway, and that network, network transaction fee, at least in the FCC network, is incredibly, incredibly cheap. So you can actually have applications that are significantly more scalable, significantly more profitable, and entirely autonomous, in which a Web2 world, you'd essentially have a whole set, like I was one of those backend engineers, you'd have a whole team of backend engineers scaling up servers all over the place, running payment providers in terms of being able to, to collect those funds, or at the very least, trying to collect as much data to be able to feed to uh, different uh, different uh, advertisers, where here you can essentially have a streamlined way of where applications can be paid directly for their engagement, just like any other sort of blockchain application may be. But now in, in means of having a new means of, of monetization, they're able to be a lot more profitable uh, for the value that you're getting, per the value that you're getting without the compromising nature of advertisements and without essentially paying so much for a subscription, you're just paying for what you use, as well as not having to manage the backend uh, infrastructure to run that application, as well as being able to run that application entirely autonomously as well. Absolutely, Quincy. And so we're going to shift gears a little bit and circle back to the XDC content because we want to get into some XRP mm -hmm. here. And one of the things that people have talked about is how XRP has positioned themselves great when it comes to taking advantage of the banking shift we're seeing today. So I just wanted to give you the open floor. As somebody who's developed on the XRPL, maybe you can describe some of the complications on developing there as opposed to other blockchains. Because when we've spoken to developers in the past, they said it's not that simple to develop on the XRPL as opposed to a product like XDC. And maybe you can elaborate. 
Yeah, so in terms of the XRP uh, ledger, the XRP ledger is a bit different than other blockchains, um, primarily because the XRP ledger is primarily focused on maximizing liquidity between different assets. One thing that I see constantly overlooked, which sort of like gets under my fingernails a little bit, is one of the key things that makes the XRP ledger so great and basically different than other technologies is the XRP ledger, well, two things. One, it's natively a decentralized exchange. The entire network is a decentralized exchange, as well as having an algorithm called the rippling algorithm that allows you to maximize liquidity between different assets. And what I mean by that is you could have, let's say I had a gold derivative and I wanted to use that gold derivative to be able to buy a Tesla stock. Well, the rippling algorithm will allow me to exchange that gold derivative, exchange it for XRP, exchange that XRP for dollar coins or whatever it may be, and exchange those dollar coins for the Tesla stock all in one without me essentially having to go through a series of liquidity pools or a series of means of liquidating these different uh, these different yeah, I think it's important to stop there and just elaborate on that. That is fascinating what you just said. So that whole process is going to be revised and brought into basically a single step. And for people who don't understand the technicalities of that, that process right there would take, I don't know, four, five, seven days to complete right now. And you're oh, talking about absolutely. all of those steps are going to become instantaneous. And so when you elaborate on decentralized applications having the largest effects on these networks, I think that's a primary example of where maybe you're not developing a business or a specific product, but by taking these current products and services and maximizing their capabilities, there's so much more opportunity there for people to um to, for people to create decentralized products going forward. But guys, we got 400 and, sorry, 539 live listeners joining us. Show us some love. Smash that like button. And Quincy, I'm sorry to cut you off. I just thought that was oh, so you're cool. And I'd love for you to elaborate on that some more. So when they talk about the XRP BL being built specifically for liquidity, why is that? For somebody that doesn't really understand the fundamentals, why is XRP built for liquidity? Yeah. So like I said, when it comes to that rippling out, it's all comes down to that rippling algorithm when it comes to XRP. Um, one of the biggest things that I don't really expect the average uh, retail investor or even like the average developer to engage with, I tend to happen, I happen to have a background, not only in economics, but I also used to work for a private equity firm. And I've sort of seen a lot of how these finance institutions work in some capacity. And one of the biggest things, and the thing that's really cool about XRP, in terms of being able to maximize liquidity, if I wanted to be able to pull liquidity out of a given asset, it would take me time to liquidate that asset into whether it may be dollars or whatever my local currency may be, and then exchange that local currency for another currency, just to be able to engage with another party, whether it's on the other side of the world or right next to me and whatever their local currency may be. And in doing so, there may be essentially slippage in terms of the time it takes to be able to liquidate these assets, the fundamental value be change between the two currencies or the fundamental value change between the asset and the currency I'm changing with can be fluctuating. These can take multiple days, if not weeks, depending on how much money you're trying to move. Um, and the biggest thing about that is, is you end up getting anything. You're only, your, your liquidity is only as good as much as the liquidity you have in a traditional world or a traditional system is only as good as the partner you're able to engage with. So, you know, let's say you wanted to liquidate $100 million with the bonds. Well, you can only liquidate $100 million with the bonds if you can find a buyer for those bonds. And that is the being traditionally pretty difficult in terms of the higher and higher in value. And that's like, it doesn't have to be bonds. It can be stocks. It can be any sort of asset of any capacity, mortgages, whatever it is. Now with the XRP ledger, the entire premise is being able to maximize liquidity through this algorithm in terms of being able to take all these different steps at the same time. So instead of you know taking these gold derivatives or bonds or mortgages, whatever it may be, the means is the, the the entire premise is being able to liquidate those assets on demand in terms of being able to move them into different assets or different currencies and then allow those different currencies to be able to uh, interact with whatever parties that you're trying to engage with. So if I had like a, a hundred million dollars worth of gold derivatives, I could instantly liquidate those 
from gold derivatives to US dollars to Japanese yen to, I don't know, Japanese stocks instantly, rather than me going through the physical process of, all right, I got all these gold derivatives. We find a broker that's willing to you know, have me sell them. Then I sell them in the dollars. Then you go find some Forex exchange, which changes those dollars into Japanese yen. Then now I have the Japanese yen. Now I can buy those Japanese stocks. Yes, if your leisure allows you to do that all in one step, simply based on the algorithm that's uh, persistent on the network and the network being a decentralized exchange, allowing you, allowing not only different parties to be able to have these assets will, ready to be engaged with, but at the same time, uh, allowing these uh, different parties to be able to capitalize off the different fees that they can essentially charge in terms of being able to provide this liquidity. And the fees don't have to be much. Like I said, if you even back, back, go back to what I said in which uh, every single time that you're providing liquidity in some capacity, you may be profiting one, you know, a fraction of a penny or a penny per share per whatever. But the biggest thing is being able to provide that liquidity allows for other partners to be able to move in and out of different assets in a way that they otherwise wouldn't be able to. Like I said, if I wanted to move from gold derivatives into Japanese stocks, it could take me about a month, depending on how much money I'm trying to move. And there could be a lot of slippage, a lot of movement in value. And being able to do that all at once using the network uh, could be a complete game changer. And I think that's one of the biggest things about XRP that I find very fascinating. Uh, and I mean, you may see this a lot in terms of different exchanges adopting XRP, but you may see a lot of wealth management advisors being able to use XRP as a means of essentially treating any asset that they have on the network as cash. And that's sort of a huge thing in finance. Uh, the, uh, the ability to liquidate an asset and the ability to purchase other assets with that liquidity is incredibly difficult depending on how much value you may have. And being able to treat any sort of illiquid asset like cash is pretty insane. Like I said, gold derivatives aren't necessarily the most liquid assets in the world, but being able to jump from gold derivatives to Japanese stocks instantly is something that you've never been able to do before. Wow. And the fact that that's going to liquidize basically all global markets and allow them to communicate and come into one ecosystem, I can't even imagine the impact. We had a really great question yesterday talking about what do you think will happen to traditional ad sites when they launch a central bank digital currency? I know this is a completely different topic, but you brought up something interesting. When all of these markets are able to communicate and the value can be exchanged instantaneously, regardless of the asset, I don't see a situation where all of those traditional assets don't increase in price over time because of the access to all, basically infinite amounts of liquidity. And I know Gonzo had a follow-up question. So Gonzo, I'm going to give you the open floor to ask Quincy a question and we'll continue. Yeah, thanks, Abs. I kind of wanted to change gears a little bit. Um, so we know guys that have been watching the show that, you know, Gary Gensler has come out and pretty much said that everything's a security except for Bitcoin. Bitcoin's a commodity. And in talking to you to prepare for this, Quincy, I know that you talked about taking your Series 7. So I think you uh, have kind of a unique perspective. Can you talk a little bit about layer ones and your thoughts about them being commodities compared to maybe dApps and those being securities? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, actually, one thing I've touched on quite a bit, I'm glad you brought that up, is sort of the question on what is the security, what is the commodity, uh, what are these assets going to be classified as, and, and sort of what you said, I actually uh, decided to start studying up on my Series 7, and uh, I do plan on uh, taking the Series 7 exam, not only to have a better understanding of how these uh, traditional assets will work, but also have a better understanding of being able to make different arguments for how these new assets may operate. And I do believe these Layer 1s, Layer 1s are commodities uh, for two big reasons. One, uh, one of the biggest defining factors of what a security is, is the means of relying on a third party to be able to, uh, to be able to create or issue value over time. Now, the biggest thing with these layer ones is those third parties are a set of decentralized node operators that are running all over the world that are completely uh, not in communication with each other. And they're essentially running the network that allows for this asset to persist. Now, once this asset is able to persist, you sort of get this notion of, uh, well, what makes it a commodity? One of the core defining facets of a commodity is each new unit of the commodity being created in any capacity needs to be different than any different than any other unit while simultaneously allowing any 
individual creator or party of, of creating that unit needs a means of being able to allow that unit to be separate from every other one. So if you're a company and you're creating a product, if I create a specific product, even though somebody else may create another product, these products are fundamentally different. But when you start looking at commodities, like let's say I was a gold mining company, well, if I mine gold over here and somebody else mines gold over there, it's still the same gold. Now, when it comes to these different layer ones, you know, if I'm a node operator, whether it's on a proof of stake network, and I get the one who, who gets to, you know, mine the, or you know, I'm potentially minting a new, new, uh, whether it's Ethereum or XTC, whatever it may be, uh, when I do that, that, that new token that I'm mining or creating is no different than any other person creating a new, th that same token, whether, like I said, whether it's XCC, whether it's Ethereum, whatever it may be. Uh, every individual node operator, every party on the network is essentially creating the next new unit that's no different than, you know, a miner, you know, a gold miner finding a new unit of gold. Where traditionally, when you would see these third parties create uh, different assets, the second you created a new asset from a third party, that asset is different than another party creating that same asset. Like let's look at an example of a futures contract. My version of a futures contract in terms of what I'm essentially allowing may be fundamentally similar to another person's futures contract, but simultaneously the means of being able to facilitate that is entirely different. I have to make sure that that essentially is able to go through and be able to be a trade that's able to be processed. You have to be the one to be able to go through and make sure your trade is able to be processed. Well, if we're essentially just node operators, essentially mining new coins onto the network simply based off some stake process or whatever it may be, these new units that are created are indistinguishable and completely identify are, are they're indistinguishable from each other and the identifiability is essentially equal so and that's one of the biggest things i really wanted to hammer in in terms of when these new assets are created or at the very least when these new commodities are created um they're really no different than any other previously created uh like I said whether it's ethereum or FTC, any previously created token they're all essentially the same the same way that if i mine gold in this part of the world and you mine gold in that part of the world we both have the same gold even though i may be in japan and i have a futures contract and you may be in the united states and you have a futures contract but these things are two entirely separate in uh, instruments which is i don't know if that's the greatest example but that's kind of the example i like to give absolutely that was so much great information guys and we're going to take this time to show our listeners the smartest way to track your crypto have you gotten wrecked in the crypto market space or watched your crypto portfolio go all the way up and then all the way down without taking profits if so, it's probably because you didn't have an exit plan. The good news is that doesn't need to happen anymore thanks to a new and innovative crypto tracker called Merlin. It's the smartest way to track your crypto. Merlin brings all your coins into one place so you can see all your assets across the different exchanges on one screen. You can see your total portfolio value and more importantly, your daily gains, losses, and total since inception. Merlin puts the power back in your hands so you no longer have to guess what your portfolio is doing on a daily or monthly basis. Most importantly, Merlin lets you create an exit plan and sends you notifications when your targets are reached so you no longer have to get wrecked in the marketplace. Go to MerlinCrypto.com. That's MerlinCrypto.com and sign up for our free 30-day trial and get on the wait list so you can receive an email when the product is launched. Don't miss out on this new and innovative app, Merlin. It's the smartest way to track your crypto. Quincy, that is our brand new application, and we have the link listed down below for our listeners to check out. This is the application that's going to allow people to create an exit strategy and execute during these bull runs. So we're trying to get people to sign up for our application, give us all the feedback. That way we can perfect this product. So if you're interested in trying our new application, smash that follow button down below and go and sign up for that free link. 30-day free trial, absolutely free. But with that being said, I want to kick it right back to Quincy here. Because we brought up some interesting news about XRP, so let's shift gears into the lawsuit, right? Because that's what everybody's focusing on. And I know you currently work for XTC, so you got to be careful about your statements here. And I'm going to preface that beforehand. 
What do you think about the XRP lawsuit when it talks about setting regulation for other products? If the SEC isn't able to show that XRP was centralized after Ripple owned over 50% of the tokens, they're going to have a really difficult time applying that to other projects throughout the market. And I'd like to hear what you believe the impact could be for regulation in the United States. Yeah, so I see that Ripple is sort of caught in a little bit of a bind here. Now, the XRP ledger is decentralized, but because the founders of Ripple essentially created the XRP ledger and Ripple essentially held so many of the tokens, what ends up happening is, although the network is decentralized, the argument that's being made is the overarching amount of value that's being attributed to the network is being attributed solely based on the efforts of Ripple. That's really the definition of the security. Now, is that the case? Probably not. But the biggest thing is because they're the biggest ones on the network and because they created the network, they sort of put themselves in this privileged position in which, well, of course, anything that they do is going to have quite a bit of an effect. Well, simultaneously, uh, things that other people may do, like uh, XRP Labs, for instance, may be a little bit overlooked. And the big thing in terms of what I think Ripple should be doing, and as well as every other project on these networks, should be articulating that just because that whether you're big small whatever just because you're one of the ones participating on the network in some capacity doesn't mean you're the only ones essentially attributing value to these networks now these networks can be have value attributed to them in a multitude of different ways and i'm not really here to get into that specifically but the biggest thing is you don't necessarily want to be a single party on any given network that's attributing the the primary the you don't want to be a single party on any given network being the one that's primarily setting some amount of value or attributing some amount of value to that network. Now, like I said, the SFP ledger is decentralized in terms of there are a set of decentralized validator nodes that are running all over the world in terms of being able to operate it. But because we're focusing so much on the token, and actually we can go into a few means of uh, how this value can be attributed to these tokens. But since we're focusing so much on the token and their involvement with the token, uh, anything that they do is sort of looked into with a huge amount of scrutiny simply based on the notion that they can have a huge influence on the overarching of the overarching amount of value that's attributed to it. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the case. This is an argument that they're going to have to fight in court. Uh, but the biggest thing is they're going to have to argue that their means of whether how many tokens they own, whether their involvement in the network, they need to argue that we're not the only ones attributing value to, and we're not even the primary ones that are attributing value to these networks. We're just essentially a participant on the network, we utilize these technologies to be able to run some level of productivity. And there are tons of people, it's not hundreds of people just like us doing the same thing. We just happen to be the biggest one. So like Craig, I said, they ended up a developer, are you concerned with the idea that the SEC may come after some centralized products as somebody who's very in-depth in the space, talking to people who are developing? Is that a concern in the background that the SEC is somebody we need to be aware of? They could put the smackdown on this whole market. Well, the biggest thing is knowing what you knowing what you are. So like I said, I do believe layer ones to be commodities simply based on the notion that there isn't any one third party operating these networks in such a manner in such a manner in which value is attributed. You have a series. Anybody can essentially run a validator node. Anybody can run a master node. Anyone can run a miner. In particular, let me just ask you about quorum. Oh. And sorry, because I love the open conversation. I'm, if I just yeah, yeah. you off, I do not mean to be rude. Um, when I think about Quorum and what they're doing with Ethereum, I feel like they're centralizing a lot of the value. It's coming through the Quorum network. And that's just a concern that comes to mind for me. So specifically for Ethereum, when you think about how Quorum is, although they don't own over 50% of the Ethereum, they're responsible for the majority of profit and the majority of decentralized applications running through this network. Do you consider that to be a centralized entity? Well, actually, so when you look at it, I mean, you look at a lot of these things, I actually might even write a paper about the fallacy of decentralization. There's going to be some level of like kinks in terms of how things pool centralized wise, but that doesn't necessarily mean that these things are centralized entities. These networks are decentralized tools and there may be different centralized entities that utilize these tools to do a lot of different things, but that doesn't necessarily make the tools 
centralized, if that makes sense. And I think that's sort of an argument that Ripple's going to end up having to make. And that's sort of an argument that I'm going to be trying to make for any project that I put forth is just because these, just because you operate these decentralized tools doesn't mean you as a centralized entity automatically rule over the tool, even if you're the biggest one. Because like I said, Ripple can disappear tomorrow or Quorum or whoever can disappear tomorrow and the tool is still there. It's, it's, it's a means of being able to operate some level of uh, productivity for your business, for your product, for your whatever. Now, there is an element of, well, that centralized entity itself may be a security simply based on how they operate. And I think that's one thing that a lot of developers, a lot of projects, and a lot of people need to understand that, understand what you are. If you're gonna be, if you're gonna create a project, and this is sort of where things get really difficult. The layer ones, I think you can argue that they're commodities and they're effectively decentralized. But when you build an application, unless you're willing to build the application in such a manner in which it's entirely autonomous, there's an element of that, that it's gonna be a security. Even to the point to where if you launch an application and you're the only one advertising it, the application can be a fully autonomous, fully decentralized, let's say it's a DAO, whatever, fully autonomous, fully decentralized, no one's touching it, but if they're the only one advertising it, then the argument is your efforts are essentially being the ones that's attributing value to these, to these, whatever that project may be. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that's true, but it means it's gonna be an argument that you're gonna have to face uh, in court. Now, that, this doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing to be a security, just know what you are. Now, part of the reason why I'm, doing this so much is if you are a security, just abide by the securities law and you're just no different than any other company that's just utilizing these technologies to build some level of productivity. That's not really a problem. But when you don't follow the securities law and you are a security, you're gonna end up in the line of fire with the SEC. Now don't get me wrong, uh, this is a huge gray area right now and it doesn't seem like there's anything in terms of any sort of clarity on what defines what. And I think the biggest thing is there's a lot of negligence. Like people kind of just do whatever and just hope that they don't get, don't get in trouble. But the biggest thing is, is until there's some level of clarity, I think what's gonna end up happening is, is unless you're able to prove or be able to make the argument that the efforts that you're participating within this broader ecosystem is no different than the efforts that anybody else is participating in these broader ecosystems, you, you yourself may be a security, especially if you're the creator of the product. Now, like I said, I do believe layer ones to be uh, fully decentralized in such a manner in which no one entity is able to uh, determine the direction that that uh, network may be going. But like I said, if I launch an app, like if I launch another a decentralized Twitter and I'm the only one advertising it and I'm the only one trying to get users onto it and I'm the only one essentially allowing for people to interact with it, well, you're basically no different than a company is operating right now. You're just using a decentralized network to operate your business. Absolutely, Quincy, and thank you so much. I want to play this video in regards to R3 and some of the payment processing mechanisms that they're working on today. They said they are start to they are going to be launching a central bank digital currency in the next 24 months, and this is somebody speaking directly from the R3 network. So we're going to let this 20 second clip play here and go back to Quincy. Here we go. I will not name any of them, but there are some that are pretty active with us. There are some that are very close to any production systems. When you say close, uh, when do you think they'll they'll go? Uh... We, we, I would say definitely within the next couple of years. They'll go live within the next two years. Yes. So R3, we just had an official from R3 State on air right here. In the next two years, we're going to have central bank digital currencies going live. And as somebody who's familiar with the development going on at XDC, there's many big banks and big partnerships that I think our listeners should be aware of. We've got SBI Holdings, JP Morgan, HSBC, several other billion dollar companies are working on XDC and developing with them. So I'd just love for you to elaborate on that, Quincy. Why do you believe some of these banks are choosing XDC? And if so, can you speak to some of the use cases being developed behind the scenes? Uh, mute button, Quincy. Sorry about that. Um, if you get the one that's on stream. 
There we go. Uh, we're getting some. It's it's on the wrong microphone, I believe. Sorry, guys, while that's going on. Gonzo, I'm going to kick it to you while Quincy figures out his microphone. What's on your mind, my friend? Let's just kill some airtime and talk it up here. Yeah, man. I mean, Quincy's just blowing my mind. There's so much good content right now, dude. We're going to have to watch this thing three or four times. You back, still, Quincy? Still no audio, Quincy. Yeah. What was that? Perfect. There it goes. Perfect. There, goes. there we, go. we go. I actually just readjusted my audio because I think I figured out what's wrong. Does it sound better than before? Yes. Yes, it, it sounds perfect. perfect now. Perfect. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Okay, I know exactly what it does. It's... This pisses me off. But anywho, I'm glad the audio is working now. We got, hey, we got all day, Quincy. I can ask you the same questions again. We can get them with good audio. No problem at all. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I hate – like, it's funny, too, because it's not my mic. Or I take it back. It is my mic, but it read off this mic rather than off this mic. So everything should be good. I hope it doesn't sound like crap anymore. Um, <laughs> Anywho – Anywho, uh, <laughs> repeat your question again. I was just readjusting everything. No, it's all good. This is actually great that we got the audio cleared out, guys. And while I have the screen, we got 570 live listeners joining us. Show us some love. Smash that like button and say thank you I'm to Quincy to, like, for making time for us. Oh my Quincy, gosh. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to educate our whole community. And what I had just specifically asked you on was the relationships that Corda is building with big banks around the world. And I pulled up this list from 2020. We've got SBI Holdings, HSBC, the NASDAQ. I know JP Morgan is also associated with XDC. What I really wanted to ask you is what are some of the use cases that are being de developed behind the scenes on these blockchains that you think our listeners should be aware of specifically in regards to the banks? Yeah. So one thing that I think it's completely overlooked as a whole is we seem to focus on the cryptocurrency themselves, but we don't seem to focus on the means of what those cryptocurrencies are going to be used for. And one thing that I find very interesting that I think is going to be sort of like revolutionary in terms of how these technologies are operated is in the form of being able to be used as a means of liquidity to participate between a set of different assets, primarily, in my opinion, commodities. I think that's going to be a huge thing. So you could have someone in one country operating with one set of commodities and another buyer in another country that's essentially buying these commodities, and they can essentially use these blockchain tokens as a means of liquidity to be able to interact with these different parties without each party having to go through their individual payment processor that's using their own individual fiat currency to be able to make that type of engagement. And I think that's the key point of really any cryptocurrency is being able to facilitate liquidity between multiple different parties all over the world and whatever level of engagement they may have, whether it's commodities, whether it's securities, whether it's dApps, whatever it may be, you can essentially now operate on a single means of value exchange without essentially having to go through your own individual payment processors to be able to uh, to be able to interact with parties outside of your normal jurisdiction and not necessarily having to focus on uh, the exchange rates between different fiat currencies to do so. Like, for instance, if you're Google for actually, this is probably one of the biggest problems for a lot of these bigger companies. If you're Google, you essentially need a individual payment processor in every single country you operate. Now, if you could just have a simple means of whether it's XDC and interacting with different apps in other countries and they just accept XDC, whether it's XRP maximizing liquidity between different assets in terms of being able to automatically move into those other currencies the biggest thing is you're able to now engage with other people in such a manner and all be on the same page or all be on the same network without essentially having to jump through these different payment mechanisms or jump through these different means of trying to engage like i said like google trying to go from dollars into yen or dollars into pesos they can essentially just engage with an app on another side of the world simply by using the cryptocurrency to do so or very easily be able to use a technology like xrp that will automatically be able to move into from different asset into different asset and it just allows for a broader level of of 
it allows for a better and more broader level of engagement between different parties all over the world in a way that we've never seen before. Like I said, in order for people to engage with each other, they would need their own individual payment processors to the point where Google or Uber or Amazon essentially have their own set of, they, it's funny to say this, but like Google is the company Google or these companies, maybe the company, whatever the company may be, but they may have another billion dollar entity that's essentially just their own payment processor to allow them to do payments or allow them to do some level of engagement in other countries for the same services that they already provide. Now they can essentially have a neutral means of being able to do so through these different cryptocurrencies rather than essentially having all these different payment processors. And these can be operated in a lot of different ways. People are just utilizing the cryptocurrency. Then me in the United States can essentially interact with an app in Japan and I can just use the cryptocurrency and we don't have to worry about uh, fiat in any of those domains. Well, simultaneously, uh, now that I'm able to engage with them in the in the broader cryptocurrency being XDC, I can now engage with anybody in the world with the broader cryptocurrency XDC, whether it's just me making an exchange, me buying a stock, whether it's me interacting with the apps that may op operate over there. It allows for a, a seamless means of interaction between different parties in a way that we've never seen before. Absolutely, Quincy. And I'm, this is exactly why I love talking to you. We got 600 live listeners joining us. Show Quincy some love. Smash that like button. Quincy, I watched a previous interview that you have with one of our friends. We've interviewed her on the show, Crypto Eddie, and she brought up something fascinating. So you described decentralized applications as what the iPhone was to the internet. It's going to take all the value that currently exists on these blockchains and allow the everyday user to maximize that value. So I'd love for you to expand on that and anticipate what do you think is going to happen when we see the decentralized application boom over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, actually. So this is what I love. This is my best example for dApps, right? So let's say we're in 2005, right? In 2005, we all got flip phones. Uh, maybe your business friends have like a BlackBerry. You know, we're all just, you know, we, we, we use the phone for what the phone's for, but the idea of apps hasn't come into play yet. So Steve Jobs introduces the uh, the iPhone in what, 26, two, uh, 2006 or 2007? Now, when people first saw the iPhone, they were going, oh, is it iPhone or is it BlackBerry? Is it iPhone or is it BlackBerry? They looked at these things as like these business tools. And one of the biggest things that I would argue that's happening with blockchain is if you were to go back to 2007 and someone were to say, which one do you think is going to be bigger, uh, the iPhone or the BlackBerry? And I said apps. They'd go, what? What do you mean apps? And I go, well, on the phone you're going to interact with, you could like interact with like Facebook. You know, Facebook was around uh, around that time too. You may be able to interact with all these different services that were traditionally websites in a way that is directly in your phone. And most people back then would be going, what are you talking about? Like, this is just like, do you want a smartphone that's a touchscreen or do you want a smartphone that's like a BlackBerry or whatever? But really the name of the game was apps. Because it doesn't matter if you are focusing on iPhone, it's really the smartphone notion of being able to interact with some piece of, uh, like really interacting with the same services that you would on a computer through a website, being able to interact with those services on your phone. And if you were focusing on apps, it wouldn't matter about BlackBerry. I mean, I guess it would in some capacity, but it wouldn't matter about uh, iPhone or Android or the Windows phone. It would be the app itself because Facebook is on all of those platforms. These different applications are on all those platforms. It doesn't matter. The biggest thing is the app itself is a means of being able to engage with some level of productivity that you otherwise wouldn't have been able to engage with before. And that's the key thing that matters in terms of blockchain. So when people seem so focused on what blockchain, it's not really the blockchain, just like it's not whether it's iPhone or Android or whatever it's about the app 
because regardless of what's going to happen is that app is going to allow for a certain level of productivity, i.e. a means of being able that app to be more scalable, that app can be, be interacted with worldwide, a means for that payment means to be interacted with that app seamlessly. It's all about that as opposed to really the individual blockchain itself, just like it's not really about the individual phone itself. Now, don't get me wrong. We sort of are in this world of like, oh my God, is it Bitcoin, Ethereum, XTC, XRP? And I may sort of like look at Bitcoin as like the BlackBerry in this regard. But the biggest thing is, the real question is, in terms of all these technologies being adopted in the future, is there a means of being able to build more productivity based on the dApps that they're able to pro able to provide the same way that apps were the real innovation when it came to smartphones, not really the smartphone. Now, don't get me wrong. The smartphone was the means of being able to facilitate the app, but the blockchains is just a means of being able to facilitate the dApp. You see what I mean? That makes perfect sense. And one of the biggest concerns or one of the things that catches my attention is the central bank digital currency narrative playing perfectly into these decentralized applications. You described in a previous interview how in the future, what you're going to do is you're going to take your bank account to log into these decentralized applications. So I'd love for you to elaborate on that. Should people be concerned about privacy or the integration of their bank accounts with some of these decentralized apps? Yeah. So what I end up seeing is, and there's a few ways that this can go about, and this is why I like to describe it this way. A lot of people seem to think that this, like, a lot of people seem to think that adoption of crypto is everybody going to Coinbase or BitTrue or Binance or Uphold and buying some coins and being like, yep, there we go. We got freaking adoption. There we go. Yep, there we are. But it's actually incredibly, like, technically taxing for the average person to do that. Um, and I guess sort of a way I can sort of, like, a means in which I can sort of articulate that is, like the average user doesn't need to like set up their own website to interact with the internet. You know, there's a browser for that and, or they don't need to go through the internet through the terminal. There's a browser for that. There's some means of being able to interact with the broader, uh, with the broader internet in some capacity than you going through all these steps. But if we were in like 1995 and I was like, Oh yeah, look at this. And I've got like a green screen up and I'm like, Oh, I'm interacting with the server in Japan right now. And you can see like, all this text. The average person, like, yeah, sure, maybe you can learn the technical skills to do that, but the average person is not going to do that. It's the same thing with crypto in that regard. Now, that doesn't mean crypto adoption isn't going to happen. What, ha what it means is crypto adoption is going to look a little bit different than what we are traditionally looking at it as. We're seeing a lot of investors get into the space, but we're not looking at many users. Now, users is really the main adoption tool because when you look at cell phones, when you look at uh, websites, when you look at computers, it's all about how many users. At the beginning, when it came to computers, only business people came uh, use computers. When it came to cell phones, only business people use cell phones. And even with smartphones, like I said, the BlackBerry iPhone, only business people use those or now you have like three-year-olds getting iphones you know what i mean or getting smartphones or whatever the biggest thing is how do you increase the amount of users within a broader system to be able to build that adoption and i think and this doesn't necessarily have to be a cbdc thing if coinbase wanted to right now if coinbase wanted to right now create a service that allowed you to interact with different dApps without essentially having to buy the crypto they could and then they provide the liquidity to interact with these different dApps while the user may have like a subscription or may have like whatever it may be whatever traditional means of being able to interact with these applications um but the biggest thing is they don't necessarily have to be the ones to buy the crypto to hold the crypto and interact with these apps and vice versa if i was to build a new app i don't necessarily need to build a app where every single person needs to hold crypto to interact with it i could essentially have a traditional means like i said like a subscription service which is funny because it goes into what i was saying before but i'll actually go into how that actually factors into uh users using something like a subscription service while simultaneously dats or developers getting this paper execution model but the biggest thing is the average user in the future is not going to be buying crypto to interact with the dat 
Yeah, you might have investors still. Yeah, you might have whatever. But you're going to essentially see businesses utilize their infrastructure on the blockchain and then use the cryptocurrency to provide liquidity to utilize that uh, infrastructure, whether it's some sort of app, DEX, whatever it may be, whatever service it is. They need to pay an execution fee and they may even, may even need to pay a DAP fee. But that doesn't mean their users have to. The users, they can get 100 million users that subscribe to whatever their application is or whatever it may be. And they can essentially allow the users to interact with some API while simultaneously they provide liquidity to the dApps on the other side. Now, the dApps on the other side might have a paper execution model. So every time a user may execute a function, it may cost one-tenth of a cent uh, in XDC, for instance, to be able to interact with. And then on the other side, you may have dApp, uh, dApp developers making you know one-tenth of a cent per engagement or whatever. And there may be a whole means of how they're able to monetize as opposed to uh, the traditional company that's basically facilitating the service. But you're going to get more users by creating a means that's a lot simpler to interact with than just assuming everyone's going to go to Coinbase buy some crypto set up a, like setting up we all know this it's a pain in the ass we all know this that setting yeah. up a wallet setting ma managing your crypto being all nervous is like oh my god i'm gonna send my crypto now sending one dollar before you yeah. send right yeah and like there's just so many processes right. that need to be wiped out completely but quick, one i gone so i know you have a question but somebody's asking in the live chat we got to ask it before the end of the show what is your iq have you ever officially had your iq tested and if so can you share your score with us because i want to know I have, and I'm sort of like weird about it. So like, I don't know if I take IQ super seriously. I mean, I do to a certain extent, but there's an element of, and before I say anything, I, I'll give you the answer, but I want to say- It's going to be a high score, forever. I can tell. Just by, just from the preface of the whole thing, I can tell it's going to be phenomenal, so. But when I was a kid, like, I, this is like a whole meme of like, oh, the kids, uh, when I was a kid, I had my IQ score tested because I was basically moving through different schools and my dad wanted to make sure I got the best education and all this stuff. And when I look at like IQ and people like pathologize IQ, it's not really about the intelligence itself. It's the be it's the means of being able to take intelligence, hard work, and persistence over time, as well as passion to be able to drive some sort of like drive some level of productivity for yourself and be able to move forward within your life. Um, like people look at IQ and go, "Oh, IQ, look how high this number is." But like to be honest, like. I honestly think it's more about that persistence and that passion that really drives you forward than just the IQ. IQ is just a tool or at least a measurement of your intelligence as a tool to be able to help you move forward. And from my last understanding, it's around 126, 127. Wow. Congratulations. I was actually, I thought it was, yeah. to be honest, if I'm going to be honest, Quincy, I thought you were going to say some astronomical score. So 126, I think you got to get it retested, man. I think you could actually perform much better than that. But guys, we got 663 live listeners joining us. Show us some love, smash that like button. If you're enjoying this content, you're not alone because I'm taking notes as well. And I want to kick it to Gonzo here because I know you had a yeah. question prepared. Floor is yours, my friend. Yeah, you brought up a really good point as far as like adoption and dApps and users. So I wanted to get your thoughts kind of like on blockchain gaming. And do you think that that's going to be kind of a, an area where we're going to see kind of the, the first part of the mass adoption process because of, you know, how how blockchain and NFTs and all that kind of um can go very well with, with, with the blockchain gaming space. Just wanted to get your thoughts on that. I'm so glad you said that. Thank goodness. All right. So we need to clear something up on blockchain gaming. So this is what I sort of hate about what's happening with blockchain, but this could be amazing if done correctly. Since everyone's focusing on investors, everything is around making money, blah, 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 making money. There's an element in some future world. Now, let's just actually, before I get into the future of blockchain gaming, let's get into traditional gaming, right? How many of you guys have like played Steam games in which, uh, whether it may be CSGO or maybe it be whatever game, like Team yep. Fortress 2 or whatever, and you may acquire in-game items and there's a marketplace to sell those items. Now, the average player that plays these games may play for a year or two and then realize that they accumulated like $2 worth of random items. like, And they go, oh yeah, I got this item and I can sell it in the marketplace. 
cool, I guess. Now, I think that's going to be the average experience for the average user in terms of interacting with any game, regardless if it's blockchain or regardless if it's like a traditional game. I think the key thing with blockchain is you now have a means of instant liquidity out of different options, out of different items, while simultaneously allowing these items to uh, remain a means of an accounting tool for these games. So a perfect example of this is, so let's say you're playing CSGO or something or, or Team Fortress 2. I don't know if CSGO has like a console version, but let's say you're playing some game on PC and there's a console version. Well, the idea of a token representing different items isn't just a means for you just to sell the item. The item might be worth, it might be worth a, a cent or a 10 cents or whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. There may be different levels of rarity to that item based on what you're using it for, based on how that item may come across. But the key ingredient that makes these things so interesting is if that's used as an accounting tool for someone who's playing on PC, they can engage with the marketplace in which that accounting tool can also be used on console. So both console and PC players can essentially have a means of being able to liquidate items within their games across platforms in such a manner that's a lot more seamless than it is now. Because And you may have some element of that now, but the biggest thing is, since it's used as an accounting tool, if this person holds this accounting tool for this item in this game in this on this platform and they sell it to somebody else as an account, like I think GTA would be a perfect example of this. Let's say you bought a car in GTA on GTA PC and it was like a... I don't know, a, a, a limited edition or whatever. So it actually might have some value to it. But that doesn't mean this car is worth 50 bucks. It might be worth like $5 or something, all right? But yeah, okay. the thing is, is when you sell that car, you essentially might be able to sell it to somebody on console who's able to buy that car from the same marketplace that you're able to and then use that car as an accounting mechanism within their game mode or within their game to be able to see themselves driving around in that car or whatever it may be. Now, the biggest thing that I find really cool with that and sort of different than a lot of these other traditional marketplaces is now games have a means of being able to liquidate items that you don't use. And I think a perfect example of this is how many of you guys have played a Clash Royale? Yep. I actually kind of love that game. I so how many times do you have like a deck? I think it's like eight cards to a deck where you max out all your cards and then you have all these worthless cards that you never use. You just yep. never use them. Well, blockchain can allow you a means of being able to liquidate or trade the value of those cards for cards you would actually use. You see what I mean? And you can have an easy means of being able to exchange items that you don't use for items that you do use simply by being able to engage in a marketplace or liquidate them. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to sell all your cards for a hundred bucks. You may liquidate all your cards and you made seven bucks, 10 bucks, whatever. But it also gives you a means of being able to exchange that value for cards you would actually use as opposed to like the whole means of like buying coins and gems or whatever. You can just have a means of being able to liquidate in and out of items that you do and or do and don't use within any given game while simultaneously allowing you to focus on the things that you do use, you know? That's fascinating, Quincy. And I do want to shift gears here just a little bit here because we're getting some amazing questions from the live chat. And I want to give a shout out to the live chat. Thank you for contributing and thank you for showing up, hitting the like button and asking these questions. We're going to ask a couple right off the bat. And we got a question from a fellow developer here. It said, can you ask Quincy a specific decentralized application that he thinks will do well? I'd just like to give you the open floor. Is there anything that catches your attention in this market? Um, in this market, no. But I do know, I know a few devs that are working on some cool stuff. Um, and I know someone who's sort of working on a decentralized Twitter in a sense. And the biggest thing isn't so much that it's special because it's a decentralized Twitter. It's a means of that paper execution model. So you can have a, so I'm pretty big on Twitter and there may be some other people that may be like big personalities on Twitter. And right now you don't get compensated for anything. I can make a post that gets a million likes and I get nothing for it. Yeah. But being able to have a paper execution model, let's say there's a decentralized Twitter and it costs one tenth of a cent to be able to like or something, or it costs one penny to make a post. Now, the biggest thing is as people may engage with my post, it may cost me a penny to engage, to make the post, but as people engage with that post, I may get a fraction of, or I may get a proportion of the, uh, of the, uh, 
of the transaction fee to interact with it. So if it's, you know, if it's uh, one tenth of a penny to interact with a post and I get a million posts, I'm able to have a means of being able to monetize my post simply based off the engagement because people have to pay a tiny fee to engage with it. And let's say the platform gets 50% of it or whatever, but now you can have a means of being able to monetize your engagement simply based off the notion that A, on the blockchain, you had to pay a transaction fee anyway. On XCC, it's like one ten thousandth of a cent. So if you end up having to pay one tenth of a cent or one hundredth of a cent, and now these creators can now get a portion of that, you can have a means of being able to, uh, you have a means of being able to monetize your content in a way that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do before. Now, Twitter operates off advertisements, so they do everything they can to be able to try to push you ads, but that also doesn't allow for creators to be able to make money off the posts that they make. So being able to have a basic paper execution model can essentially allow for uh, different creators to be able to monetize the post that they would otherwise get engagement with anyway and allow them to be more incentivized to engage with the platform. Fascinating, Quincy. And somebody's asking, where's Johnny Crypto? Johnny Crypto is on his way to a pretty cool conference. But guys, I want to show you guys another question here. Will proof of work like Bitcoin ever run on quantum computers? These are some broad questions we're going to run through, Quincy, if that's okay. Will Bitcoin run on quantum computers? um no <laughs> that's what i said i said no <laughs> like, like yeah that's sort of a well one okay let's just let's just break this down for instance actually uh in terms of like a quantum computer the entire premise of mining would go out the window because any quantum computer will mine every block instantly like go. it wouldn't need a, it wouldn't have that process of doing the calculated puzzles or whatever it may be but yeah no that, that's just no no Another question we got, did Quincy get approached by Ripple at all? And if so, why did he choose to work with XTC? Only looking for political correct answers, Quincy. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, when I broke onto the scene, I got approached by a lot of different a lot of different entities. Obviously, like XTC is one of the biggest ones that you see. But um, I was actually already interested in XTC before uh, I even got approached, actually. Like I said, I was working on Corda and I was doing quite a few other things. And like Ripple wasn't really like, like, don't get me wrong, like, it's not like, I don't know how to describe it. Ripple's not really, I don't know how to describe it. I felt like I had a lot more freedom and a lot more uh, autonomy and a lot more means of being able to make a difference on XDC than on any other network, or at least on any other project that I was approached at the time. And like I said, I was already using XDC. I liked the notion of smart contracts. And I originally, like when I first came into the space, I originally geared towards Bitcoin. And then I was like, well, I can't do much with this Bitcoin. Then I went towards Ethereum and I was like, well, Slidy smart contracts are cool, but these are expensive. And I liked XDC and the fact that I'm able to essentially build the same sort of applications that I otherwise would have built on Ethereum, but they're a lot more efficient and just a lot better to build. Now, Ripple is a company where the XTC Foundation is a like a, a uh, is a decentralized um, XTC Foundation is a decentralized nonprofit. So we're mostly focused on supporting the network as opposed to supporting the Ripple shareholders. Um, but I just sort of like the notion. Well, one, the notion of open source and the notion of uh, decentralization. Well, like I said, Ripple is a company, so they're focusing on Ripple, Ripple technology, Ripple software. That doesn't mean they don't use XRP, but like I said, everything on Ripple is a company rather than part of an open source uh, community. And I do love the notion of open source. I'm actually working on a few open source projects myself. Fascinating. Here's a great question we got here from about ISO protocols. I would like to hear from Quincy. Does ISO 20,022 actually have anything to do with cryptocurrency? If so, what what is the effect that it will have? And one of the important questions I wanted to bring in, Quincy, is we know this is a slow migration over two years. There was a lot of rumors in the community beyond our channel stating that when March 20th came around and these implementations were, were set in stone, we would see some bullish price action. We said from day one that would never be the case. So I just want to state that beforehand. I'm not sure what the implications would be before we even talk about this of ISO protocols becoming in full effect and running and being responsible for swift transactions. 
maybe you can reference that here. So the specific question asked is, is ISO, does it have anything to do with crypto? If so, what will the impact be? So it does not have anything to do with crypto, but let me understand or let me explain what ISO is for. ISO 20022 is not the only ISO standard. All these ISO standards that banks use, that different financial institutions use, the entire premise of it, whether it's ISO 20022, whether it's ISO whatever, there's a whole, you can just look up ISO standards. There's a whole bunch of them. The entire premise is the ISO standard allows for different entities to abide by the same data schema. So and that schema could be name, date, asset, whatever. It's just, a, it's just a bunch of data in a specific order. Now, what happens is if I'm a bank in one country and you're a bank in another country and I organize my data this way and you organize your data that way, it can be really, it can be really difficult to allow for that means of interaction because we have to do some level of translation on both our parts. But if we're abiding by the same data schema, then I can engage with you and you can engage with me and we can essentially share data to each other's databases or send data to each other without having a means of trying to do this guesswork of trying to map it over. And it just may not be something like sort of like comparable to the average user, but if you're dealing with different databases, you're dealing with different messaging standards. Uh, it'd be very difficult just to, if one piece of data out of line can be very difficult to be able to uh, reorganize that in a manner in which your systems can interact with and they can reorganize in a manner for their systems to interact with. So the ISO standard just is a simple schema of data to allow for different participants that, nothing, the whole point of it is, yeah, sure, maybe, maybe there's like 20 of us and we all operate on the same schema. But let's say there's another person over here that I've never met before. It'd be very difficult for all of us to be doing this crazy guesswork in terms of being able to share information with each other, where if we were all operating off this ISO standard and, you know, I'm going to go do business with you, this person I've never met before, and we're both operating on the same ISO standard, we have a simple means of being able to share data with each other without essentially doing all this reframing guesswork in terms of being able to allow this uh, means of interoperability. That's all it is. It's a means of being able to share information with other parties in a manner in which you can already anticipate for how the data is going to come in. That is it. Now, when it comes to the different ISO standards for uh, cryptocurrencies, and this is what people also miss out, is the ISO standard isn't the cryptocurrency. The ISO standard is a means of referencing the data from the blockchain to reference in a database. So if I was running a full node on, or if I was running a validator, or if I was running a full node or a, a, a master node on XTC, the biggest thing is, if I'm pulling data from the blockchain, I'm pulling that data in the ISO standard to allow me to uh, in to allow me to reference that data in my database and share that data in a manner that's efficient, rather than me just pulling some random data schema, trying to figure out how to reorganize that data into my own my own system, and then be able to manage it. So it's just a means of being able to reference data off the blockchain in terms of the crypto sense and in terms of the broader. Uh, banking or financial, whatever. It's just a means for people to be able to communicate with each other from the, with the same standard of uh, information so they don't have to do this guesswork and this reformatting and, and, and all this stuff. You see what I mean? Quincy, we got 666 live listeners joining us. Show us some love. Smash that like button. A question that came to mind is, are they not going to associate data with specific token value? Like when I look up these XT, or sorry, these ISO protocols, what I'm seeing is they're actually using the token itself to associate it with a set of data. So is that not going to be happening in Swift? If so, can you elaborate? No, it's, so it's the token. It, it's not about the token. It's about referencing data off the chain. Like I said, if I'm running a full node and I want to pull some data off the blockchain to just reference some information, well, that data, and that's thing, the, the, the ISO format is like an XML data schema. So it's just me pulling that data schema in terms of being able to reference what information I want and then be able to use that information for whatever I'm trying to do. If I'm, you know, if I'm referencing, if I want to pull some data on the activity of a smart contract, I'm just pulling that data through a specific data scheme, uh, data schema. And as like through a full node, it has nothing to do with the token. It's everything to do with the networks. It's everything to do with the nodes. Nothing to do with the token. 
Uh, the token is just a means in which the network is able to exchange value, but the data itself is being referenced off the node. And this isn't the same as data being referenced within the smart contract either, because data reference in the smart contract can, uh, can interact with other smart contracts through essentially, I mean, for at least for EVM, at least for EVM um, chains, through uh, a basic means of, oh, I forgot what it's called, I think it's the ENS, uh, a basic means of being able to interact with other Solidity data. But the data you're referencing off the node itself is essentially the ISO data that you're referencing. And that's just a means of just reading information off the blockchain. That like it's just a yeah, basically just referencing information off the blockchain in a manner in which you can already format it uh to a standard that you're already abiding by. Thank you, Quincy. And the, here's a couple of questions. They all kind of go together. So the first one is when do you think institutions will adopt XRP? Or sorry, not XRP, XDC. We're going to put that on the back end. What I did want to focus on is is XDC the default asset for R3 and Corda? I have a follow-up question, but that's the first one. I don't believe it's the default asset. It's I don't believe Corda has a default asset. I think I believe Corda has a means of being able to interact with multiple assets. XCC happened to be one of the first ones. That's sort of the biggest thing that people sort of get uh, get get sort of twisted. XCC just happened to be one of the first ones. And actually, the funny story about that is uh, Corda originally did launch with a token, and it launched with the token called XDC on the same day XDC launched its token XDC. And at the time, Corda and XCC had no no idea each other. Uh, realized had no idea that each other existed but they both launched the xdc token on the same day they both looked at each other and they're like what hey wow and then uh corda changed their token to xkd and that works with a whole bunch of corda dApps or core dApps and uh cordite um but because they were able to sort of see each other in this weird sort of miscommunication um xdc ended up being one of the first tokens that were able to one of the first off-chain tokens to be able to interact with the corda uh, ecosystem. Now, Corda has a has a system called Corda Settler that allows you to interact with really any sort of payment means, but uh, that's sort of an external means of being, it's like an external ticketing system to keep track of payments that are happening off chain. But yeah, XCC would just happen to be one of the first ones. That's really the main thing. There are a lot of other, there are a lot of other assets that you can essentially exchange or assets you can create on the Corda network that can allow you to uh, engage with other, uh, other parties in terms of exchanging value. And this is another great question, kind of building on what you just referenced. It said, what about Impel? What are they doing on the XDC network? They can allow instant settlement through the use of digital assets. I'm sure you can elaborate, Quincy. Yes, I'm glad you guys asked this because I see a lot of like I see a lot of people not really understanding what Impel is doing. Impel is actually uh, providing a bridge, not only to XDC, but to a host of different networks. And in that bridge, they're allowing their, whether it's a set of wrapped assets or it's just the bridge itself, they're allowing to allow the assets that go through that bridge to abide by that ISO data standard. So if you're referencing any data going to the going to the Impel bridge, you can reference that data in the ISO standard while simultaneously being able to have a means of being able to move assets from uh, network to network. Whether it's bringing assets from the XRP to XDC, bringing Bitcoin to XDC, moving it's just a bridge in terms of being able to interact with uh, different networks. And they're able to, and in that bridge, they're able to allow for a level of uh, the ISO standard to persist for assets that otherwise wouldn't have had that standard simply based off them utilizing that bridge. Are you familiar with the new protocols that the Fed released called for their instant payment system called FedNow? Are you familiar at all? Yeah, I am a bit familiar. Now, before people get crazy about FedNow, FedNow has been an idea for like 20 years. Um, and I don't know if it's being like super implemented or if it's one of those like government things where like, we're going to do this. And then they just never do it. And then randomly they spring it on everybody. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'm familiar with the concept of FedNow. And the, I think the premise of it is, is that uh, there's a central repository of I'm pretty sure the, the premise is, is that 
either the Fed or some elements of the Treasury is a central repository to allow for an exchange, or basically like a payment provider between all the different banks that operate uh, that operate within the uh, within the whether it's like the nation or potentially even the world. But the biggest thing is it's just like a payment provider to allow banks to be able to have liquidity into each other and do it quickly. Um, sort of the same way that Visa does it, but more of like a back end service for the banks to be able to exchange value. So, uh, hey, uh, sorry, I, I'm just reading a message from uh, Johnny. Johnny had a question and I just lost it. Here it is. Abs, please ask Quincy if the blockchain can operate without the native cryptos, cryptocurrency or a private cryptocurrency that is public can't invest in. So I think what he's trying to ask is, you know, we have all these different cryptocurrencies and what he's worried about is that these guys are going to come out with their own private blockchain with their own cryptocurrency that's a closed system and that we wouldn't be able to kind of invest in the rails. Sounds like what, what, what Johnny's asking. I mean, that's still different than how Hyperledger or Corda is operating. So like, let's say the Fed operated on Corda or Hyperledger, that's basically that. And not that they wouldn't have their own token. It, they'd probably have some token to interact with some broader, like some broader element of economic exchange, whether that's just businesses being able to exchange dollar coins or CBDCs. But the biggest thing about cryptocurrencies in terms of how these uh, public blockchains operate, a lot of people kind of miss this, but the cryptocurrency itself does two things. One, it's a means of being able to engage with the network as a whole. It's almost like a, uh, it's almost like a means of triage. So in theory, if I set up a server, anybody can interact with that server and me being the, be, being the server operator can decide who interacts with that server. But on the blockchain, well, it's a decentralized set of servers. So in order to keep everyone from essentially interacting with those servers all at once, there needs to be a means of triage to allow people to interact with them. That's partially what the cryptocurrency is for. In order to interact with this server, to engage with some function or to make some transaction, you need to hold the cryptocurrency. Otherwise, anybody can just execute the server at any given time. You'll just overload the system. Now, with that, you essentially, the cryptocurrency itself also acts as a mechanism for an incentive for people to run the servers themselves. So if I'm just going to run a random server for people to use, why should I do that? Well, if we have a means of being able to mint new cryptocurrency as some form of value, not only as an incentive for you to run these servers, but also as an incentive, uh, at, also as a means of being able to interact with these servers, the overarching amount of demand for the server itself, whether it be just the blockchain, uh, will also determine a level of value attributed to the token, which will, in, which in turn will create a further uh, incentive for people to run servers as a whole. So it's sort of like this triage for you need the cryptocurrency to interact with these networks, while simultaneously it acts as an incentives for people to even run the network in the first place. And there are different ways that this could happen. This could be in the new creation of cryptocurrency through a minting process, whether it's like proof of stake and you, you know, sign the validator and you get the, get the minting process, whether transaction fees happen on the network and so many of those fees go to the node operators. It's just a means, it's an economic means of creating an incentive for people to run these networks in the first place while acting as a triage mechanism. So everybody in the world can't execute this at the same time. You essentially need to buy the cryptocurrency to do so. And in doing so creates more value attributed to the cryptocurrency, which in turn creates a further incentive for people to run the servers to run these networks. Fascinating. Dude. Gonzo, I'm going to give you the floor. I know you got to run. So thank you for making time for us today. Yeah, man. I just want to say thank you so much, Quincy, for joining us. I'm going to drop off a great content. I'm going to have to watch the show two or three times to get all the information. And I hope you come back to spend time with us, Quincy. It was nice Absolutely. meeting you. Bye, nice guys. Meeting you too, man.
Thank you so much, Gonzo. And Quincy, on that note, we're going to continue with the show because for me personally, I want to keep you here all day. So until you tell me to get off the stream, we're going to be right here, guys. And we got 656 live listeners joining us. Show us some love, smash that like button, and be sure if you want to ask a question, throw it in the live chat because I will be asking Quincy. And the next question that I had is one you're probably not excited to answer, but one that I'm willing to ask. And it said, what do you think about price predictions for any specific currency in the group? I'm not going to ask you to say, oh, what do you think about XTC's price target? But as this market moves up in general from use cases, decentralized apps, and excess liquidity, what are you anticipating for this market cap leading into 2025? Yeah, so when it comes to price predictions, one, okay, I'm glad you said the market cap thing. So just take price out of it. And what you're really looking at is market market cap growth over time. And that market cap growth over time is almost like an accelerated version of like GDP growth. But instead of GDP growth being like gross, gross uh, basically GDP growth being of a nation, this essentially is GDP growth of the network. So how much value is essentially being attributed to the network? How much value is being exchanged on the network? And how much value is being demanded of the network uh, over a given period of time? Now, obviously, these are a lot more uh, rapid growth than just traditional GDP of like a nation in, in regard. But that's essentially the comparable, uh, that's essentially the comparable uh version of how blockchain is operating so you're almost basically anticipating like how much growth of a network are we going to have in terms of how much value is being attributed to the network itself by people engaging on the network and how much value is being moved into the network itself from people bringing value like i said it's changing dollars for these coins and because they're changing dollars for these coins there's a certain element of value being attributed to these coins because there's an exchange value there but that's really what you're looking at and it's it's a it's Really, it's anybody's guess because you're really looking at a macro view. And at least with GDP growth, you can essentially look at like the different businesses. You can look at how much credit's being issued. You can look at like different monetary policies. With crypto, it's just anybody in the world adopting these networks and creating some level of productivity on these networks. And it could happen at any rate and it can happen at any time. And anybody could do it literally because it's blockchain. So it's sort of like anybody's guess and where these things are going to go. But in terms of like, that comparable notion of what that value being attributed to. Now, don't get me wrong. You take the market cap divided by how many tokens you get the price. But if you're going to have any sort of price prediction, it's going to be essentially a market cap prediction based off how much value is going to be attributed to these networks over time and sustained on these networks over time. The difference between GDP growth and a lot of these like network market value growth is when it comes to GDP growth, you don't see crazy volatility in terms of the amount of value being attributed to a broader economy. But you do see a lot of volatility just in the notion that people redeem value from these cryptocurrencies as a means of being able to profit back in U.S. dollars, which in my opinion, by the way, is kind of counterintuitive to the notion of crypto is the future if you're going back into dollars. But anywho, um, the biggest thing is how much value is being attributed to these networks over time and um, how is that value being sustained based off some level of economic activity? Quincy, and one of the things I wanted to address as well, now that we got the audio figured out, we're circling back to the XRP conversation. And you just let me know whenever you have to hop on air, I'm going to ask questions all day. So just give me the heads up and we'll kick it right off air. But we want to talk about XRP for our listeners out here. Maybe you can explain why XRP is set up. And I know we addressed it earlier with the audio, so feel free to repeat yourself. Why do you believe XRPL is set up to be the hub for liquidity? And explain that to everyone who doesn't understand. Yeah, so so like I said before, one thing that very much gets overlooked as a whole, and, and at least for XRP, I, this is XRP is a very interesting technology, and but XRP isn't everything. The one thing XRP is, is the one thing everything else isn't. And one, it's a decentralized exchange. The entire network's a decentralized exchange, but also it has essentially what, it has this algorithm called the rippling algorithm that allows you to exchange, it allows you for a neutral means of exchange between multiple assets in one motion. So like I said, like one thing I stated before was if I had gold derivatives and I wanted to buy Tesla stock or I wanted to buy Japanese stock 
and these gold derivatives may have liquidity into dollars and i may need to go from dollars into japanese yen and then japanese yen is a japanese stock the rippling algorithm will find that shortest path of being able to make all those exchanges for me so it seems as if for me i'm exchanging gold derivatives for japanese stocks when the network itself is going gold derivatives us dollars us dollars japanese yen japanese yen japanese stock boom all in one motion and that's essentially one of the biggest value points for xrp but like i said the one thing that XRP is, is what X everything else isn't. But at the same time, XRP isn't essentially like a, a smart contract platform, or it isn't a means of, you can build dApps, but these dApps are essentially going to be more finance focused in terms of being able to utilize that means of maximizing liquidity based off the rippling algorithm, rather than like the next Facebook or Twitter or whatever it may be, that may be like a, on a smart contract platform like XDC. You see what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And this is another question I thought was worth addressing here. It said, with that being said, which network do you believe has the most potential? And we're not talking about price targets. I want to focus on use cases because you said that's what's most important. When you look around the ecosystem, there's development going on all across the board, whether it's XDC, XRP, XLM, or even Ethereum. Which company or which project do you believe has the most potential when it comes to use cases? I mean, I'm sort of biased in this regard, but I'm not going to even really answer that question. I think the biggest thing that you should look at is what type of activity is being facilitated on different networks. And will that type of activity be facilitated uh, maximally in that domain? You're going to have a bunch of different networks do a bunch of different things, and they may do similar things. Like one thing I like to compare is XTC and Ethereum are very similar in terms of what they can technically do. But as you can see on Ethereum, it's mostly focused towards retail-based uh, applications where the average user can interact with the average application, whether this is an NFT marketplace, whether this is some sort of DAP around finance. They're like these retail-based uh, financial instruments where on XTC, we're focusing on automated trade finance between multiple institutions all throughout the world. Now, in theory, these applications could run very similar, but their markets are different. So it really just comes down to uh, what markets are being catered to and facilitated on what different networks and how well they're able to capture those markets, regardless of how, what type of technological advantages they may have. What do you believe the impact will be when decentralized applications do go mainstream and people don't have to turn to a, to a third party like Uber? Is that going to have a massive negative effect on the economy? Maybe you can explain that to me. So it's not that people aren't like, I think this is something that gets sort of misconstrued a little bit. I don't think the average person is going to be interacting with a fully autonomous app. I actually think you may see entities do this. So a perfect example of this is a DEX. You may be thinking, oh, you know, the average person can go interact with the DEX and exchange tokens. Cool. But what a DEX allows you to really do is you could have uh, you could have one institution in this country, one institution in this country, and they have a means of being able to have liquidity into other assets through this DEX without having to go through a centralized uh, entity, which traditionally would mean that maybe one party has access to that entity because they're in their local jurisdiction, but the other party doesn't because they're not. So because you're able to have this autonomous means of being able to interact between multiple entities through this autonomous application like a DEX, you may essentially see a high level of productivity in terms of these institutions being able to either engage with each other or have a proxy to engage with each other. Like I said, if they just need liquidity, like if I'm running, if I'm running like Robinhood and I need some external liquidity in terms of like getting some token on some deck somewhere, it's easier for me to do that than to find a broker that's trying to provide the liquidity for me. So I think you're going to see this more as like an instrument for institutions to be able to utilize. And like for the example for like Uber. Yeah, you may be able to use Uber in such a manner or adapt like Uber in such a manner in which it's entirely autonomous and you don't need to use Uber. But I think what's most likely going to happen is Uber may be utilizing the technology in some capacity to help create their uh to help create their business to be more efficient and you'll still use uber but uber may have like a perfect example would be let's say uber doesn't have enough orders to be able to fulfill uh, a, a ride 
Well, Uber may be able to trigger another DAP that might be the Lyft DAP and then provide you a service from Lyft in Uber because they're able to utilize this technology to be able to interact with other technologies to uh, provide that service for you. So instead of them centrally being the only one providing uh, services, um, in terms of like ride sharing, they may be able to tap into other services, like other ride sharing services, pay them or allow them to have a means to interact with and then provide you the service through their centralized entity. But really they're utilizing another service. They're just being a proxy for it because they have the technology to do so. Where now if Uber and Lyft wanted to be able to provide services to each other, they would need to have some sort of partnership or deal or whatever, where this could be essentially a payment to a smart contract on another DAP. And then that person comes to you, even though uh, they're just, they just don't have the drivers. It's a fascinating thing. Even just listening to you talk, Quincy, it gets me really excited because I think that our people, our community specifically, all of these people are very unique because the majority of the public is never going to understand the process that increased payments to make them instant. Everybody's just going to understand, look, my bank of America now allows me to send my hundred dollars instantaneously to somebody else's bank account. But guys, we got 634 live listeners joining us. Show us some love. Smash that like button. And Quincy, this is more of a general question I wanted to ask you. As somebody who's been developing in this space since you were a sophomore in high school, and I don't know how old you are, but I'm going to guess you're under 25. So it's been a little Actually, bit of a 26. I just turned 26. There you go. Ago. Congratulations. Happy birthday. So, well, there you go. You're 26 years old. And what I think is so exciting is about that, that means you're basically a decade into developing when it comes to blockchains. So I'd like to ask you a broader question here. Is there anything you understand as a developer developer that the regular retail investor might understand because they don't have that technological background. Maybe you can inform our listeners. And I know it's a broader question, but I think it's important. Is there anything you can fill people in on? Um, so first thing I might say is actually, uh, I spent maybe like the first three or four years mostly like into modding. And then once I finally got into my professional career, I actually spent all of that in cloud, AWS, Azure. And then maybe around two or three years into that, I got into the blockchain. So I really got around maybe three years of blockchain experience, four years of blockchain experience. But in terms of like how these technologies work, I feel like I've had a really good foundation in terms of seeing how these traditional technologies operate and seeing how they can correlate to a lot of these other uh to a lot of these other autonomous technologies or decentralized technologies. Now, I think one of the biggest, I guess you could say, perspectives I may have that the average retail investor may not, or even just the average developer may not, is I see how difficult it is to build applications in Web2. When I was building applications in AWS, it is very... So one thing that people seem to not get, which is really funny, is, yeah, you can write code and everything, but you have to essentially uh, build the infrastructure for that code to run. So I could build an app and, you know, I write the code for it, but then I need to set up the servers. I need to set up the infrastructure, set up the networking, set up the databases, set up the APIs, set up the pipeline, set up all these different things just so the app can run. Um, we're on blockchain. You don't necessarily have to do that. Uh, once you're able to deploy the applications to the broader network, you have no means of being able, you have no necessary need to essentially operate all of this other infrastructure stuff. And I was literally an infrastructure engineer. That's my biggest thing. I was actually focusing on being a DevOps engineer in terms of being able to have a more consistent, seamless way of being able to deploy applications, test applications, run them in different uh, server environments, set up different databases, uh, be able to set up different ETL pipelines, extract, translate, and load, move data around. And um, that doesn't even, that like we have a website, but there's so much stuff on the back end that has that website even running in the first place. Uh, and that's the thing, not, not to mention in terms of scaling it, uh, high availability, and then all this goes into this huge cost to be able to run these different things. Where on blockchain, you can literally just focus on the code itself. You can focus on the code itself rather than the infrastructure to run it. And in terms of that, I see a lot of savings in terms of being able to run applications that are autonomous then, and, and ends up being, and not just savings in money, but savings in time, um, because you don't necessarily have to spend all this time and energy 
building this broader infrastructure, these databases, these networks, these APIs, all these different things are really sort of cooked into a, a, a one-stop shot of a blockchain. And that's sort of the thing that I end up seeing is it's not so much that these networks are just like these magical networks that are able to run these apps. It's that they're cheaper, they're a bit faster, highly available, a bit more scalable now, depending on how scalable is sort of depending on the network. But the biggest thing is you're able to focus more on building the app than you are on maintaining its infrastructure. And one thing that I find is funny is at least what my job was in cloud was making sure that your experience as a user was seamless. And I think a, a good example would be like if I was running the infrastructure for Twitter, my biggest thing is, yeah, there's the Twitter app and the Twitter website, but there's the API that may pull from a database in terms of being able to feed that information. There's infrastructure in terms of servers all over the world that need to be able to be running and databases all over the world that need to be highly available. So if one server goes down, one database goes down, your whole infrastructure doesn't go down. You have other means to be able to pick up the slack. You can essentially operate, uh, you can essentially operate that application worldwide without having to manage all that infrastructure. And I think it's one of the key things that's going to, that's why I focus on DAP so much. But yeah, the networks are cool and the means of being able to exchange value is cool, but the means of being able to build an application that can essentially scale up to millions of users, be operated anywhere in the world, and you not necessarily having to be the one to manage that infrastructure is insanely huge. And I think that's going to be the biggest thing that drives a lot of users, or at least drives a lot of uh, uh, companies to utilize these technologies. One, because they can don't have to spend time on hosting costs. They spend time on transaction costs. But two, they can focus more on their applications than they do on managing the infrastructure for them. Here's a follow-up question for you, and this is out of the EU, and this is the first topic that may be slightly news-related and not directly an interview question. Smart contract developers may need to design a reset possibility to allow the termination of smart contracts in Europe. This may restrict innovation innovation, or make it difficult for smart contracts in the crypto industry to comply. Some in the industry are very worried. And I'd like to hear from you as a developer, what does this mean to you that they want to apply a kill switch to all smart contracts in Europe? Is that going to hinder innovation or, or is this a good thing for the retail investor? Uh, can you repeat that last part again? Yeah, so they're adding, a, they're adding a kill switch to all smart contracts in Europe through this new litigation here. And my question is, is that going to hinder innovation? Is this a positive for retail or a negative? Um, I'm not really sure how they would even implement a kill switch. They would have to get to these developers and implement this kill switch. It would have to be like a regulation that you can't launch a smart contract unless it has like this kill switch standard, um, which could be really weird. But at the same time, like, like from a developer standpoint, if there's something wrong with the app, a kill switch, yeah, sure. But you can just read, and this sort of goes into the notion of whether it's an, a fully autonomous application or whether it's just a, a piece of technology that's being able to run some corporate process. So if you had an application that was compromised in some regard, you can just relaunch another smart contract, redirect your users to that new smart contract, and maybe have a migration process of moving some of that data over. It's not referencing data from the previous contract and you're good to go. Um, but I mean, in terms of like a kill switch, it just seems like that it's just like a bunch of like bureaucratic red tape for something that I find sort of unnecessary. I mean, I sort of get the notion of like maybe... I don't know. It's a very, I think it will stifle innovation because I don't think it really does anything. Um, I mean, like, yeah, I don't really think it does anything like useful outside of like, oh no, like, I hope this contract doesn't get compromised, I guess. But yeah. like I said, if it were to be compromised, um, if you're operating as a company or operating as, as, I mean, maybe a company might want to institute their own kill switch in case it's compromised. I don't know. It, 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 for me, it just seems like more bureaucratic red tape. I don't really see any like really good use of it. 
I appreciate that. That's a great answer because that's actually what I I agreed with you. I don't think it's anything beyond bureaucratic red tape and also completely unnecessary. But Quincy, I want to switch topics just a little bit and focus on AI because I believe that this is going to be a leading narrative heading into the bull run during 2025. And it's already 1245. So just give me the heads up. I'm going to continue to remind you. If you need me to shut up, just I'll shut up and we'll hop off the air. But we're going to go into some AI content now. And this is what caught my attention about the AI narrative going forward. Quantum computing and quantum blockchains are going to be a main narrative in 2025, and I think AI is going to play a part. So to begin that conversation, what are your thoughts on AI in general, and how quickly do you think this emerging technology could be a threat to many of us operating in this space? Yeah, so I guess there's two ways to look at it. There's AI adoption as a whole, and then there's AI adoption with blockchain. Um, AI adoption as a whole, from my experience, AI is just another tool that we use to be able to drive further productivity. And it's really no different than a lot of the tools we currently use. It's just a bit more sophisticated. So I see a lot of people going, oh, my God, AI is going to automate our jobs. Oh, my God. Well, technology is already doing that to some regard. So AI is just another technology that may do that to some regard in some capacity. But it's not just the one all be all that's going to take everyone's jobs. It's just a means of being able to interact with these uh, with these productive services in a means that's more efficient. Um, and by more efficient, it means ideally you wouldn't have to think as much. Uh, which could be a good or a bad thing. Um, but at the same time, it could consolidate a lot of information a lot quicker than any person could. But like, this is no different than how people were talking about computers uh, in the early 90s. Like, there was a whole argument that computers are bad because uh, it's going to take away the jobs of the type of the typewriters. Like, come on, like, really? and they said it was going. They're like, it's going to stifle human creativity by not allowing people to think. It's going to. They're not going to think anymore. There's always these dumb narratives, and so it's yeah. great to hear your thoughts. Like, this is another question I'd like to for you to answer. It said, if you were to compare blockchain to a specific location, this is a great analogy here. Would you compare it to a mall or a neighborhood? What would your reference be to? simplify it for everyone out there <laughs> blockchain to a location let's see blockchain to a location i can give you an answer but i don't want to cheat here i have an idea i have an idea and the way i like to describe it is it's like a party or a pool party and not in the sense that it's all fun and games and cool although it could be that way but blockchain doesn't work unless you have a certain level of participants engaging with it to allow for people to utilize that level of efficiency and like that level of like interoperability. Just like a party. If you go, I can go to the biggest mansion with a bunch of kegs, the nicest pool, everything's cool, but there's nobody there. It's like, what am I going to do? Like, what's the point? Um, but if I go to a party where it's just like some dude in his apartment, he's freaking got all these people here. The the engagement with others is really the thing that brings a lot of value to blockchain. Now, obviously, a party may just be more about fun and drinking, whatever. But the engagement with others in a means that's more efficient than just like if we're all having a party or whatever, I'm able to talk to you. I'm able to talk to me. I'm able to go over this and talk to him. I'm able to go over there and talk to her, whatever it may be, where if we're like over Skype or something, it's not quite the same. I think blockchain does the exact same thing in terms of the more people that you have engaging with, as well as being able to utilize the technology to further some level of efficiency or productivity. The more people that you have to engage with, the more of pr more productivity you can get out of that engagement. And the reason I say that is in the Tristo Web 2 world, you have really what goes through a bunch of individualized APIs. And this could be almost like the Skype call where I've got my call over here and I got my internet over here and I've got my infrastructure. Nothing like my API could be amazing. So my internet's great. My, you know, the camera's great. The mic's great. But, you know, you may have like John over there and his API is crap and I can barely hear them. It's breaking out every so often. Uh, and I think maybe he's doing everything he can to do with that API. The party is that, well, we're all on the blockchain. We're all in the same room. We're all engaging with each other. We're able to get that like seamless means of engagement with each other uh, without any of these issues. And not that APIs have any issues. It's just that 
every API for every entity is entirely independent of every other API and every other entity. So it's very difficult. You essentially need two different businesses or two different teams coming together to allow their APIs to be interoperable with each other with some level of compatibility. Well, on the blockchain, you can literally just point one smart contract to another smart contract. You can build upon other applications that have already existed. Sort of in the idea of like, oh, there's a party. You two are having a conversation. I can just, hey, how's it doing? As opposed to like a Skype call where like one person's bugging out on one side of the Skype call, another person's bugging out on the other one. I'm like trying to come in and we can barely hear each other. So that's sort of the way I like to describe it. Absolutely. And you know what, this is, we're going to switch gears a little bit. And this is where I want to take this conversation. We've already had somebody in the comments address that Neuralink is going to control the metaverse in 2025. I wouldn't go that far, but I am a proponent in understanding that they're going to implement this technology because there's a concept called BrainNet. And BrainNet is something I'm sure you're aware of, right, Quincy? Just to preface. I'm, I'm aware of Neuralink. I don't know if I'm aware of BrainNet. So BrainNet can, uh, can you elaborate on that? Of course. So BrainNet's a really interesting concept, and it's the only way that we're going to be able to operate in an economy dominated by AI. This is according to Elon Musk here. So this is the reason that he's developing Neuralink in the first place is because if we aren't able to integrate with the internet, a human being is going to be as dumb as a, as dumb as a mouse is as opposed to us. So what AI is compared to a human being in Elon Musk concept is like a human being compared to a piece of grass. You can't have a conversation with a piece of grass. It's too slow. It's too operative. So I wanted to get your thoughts there. How do you feel about this technology combating the AI narrative and the fact that we're going to have to integrate or be left behind? Do you believe that? Yeah. So I think people think way. So there's the practical use of this and I'll explain what that looks like. And then there's like this vision that people have. Now people have this idea of like, we got these chips in our brains and we're completely connected to the internet and AI and, and everything's all like crazy. But like, we sort of already have that with our phones, but it's not like everyone's a freaking genius because they use Google, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, but the thing is, is what you may end up seeing is you may see a more of a seamless transition with technology. So one thing I always think about is as a developer, I use a keyboard, right? I have a keyboard, I type my code, whatever. Uh, there's a means in which I can essentially think up the code and interact with that logic directly, as opposed to having to type out every letter. There may be a level of uh, higher productivity and efficiency based off me being able to think of a concept, construct it in a manner, and then maybe write up a code and test it and be able to run through all these processes a lot quicker. But like that's that like that's more comparable. Or let's say I'm like unlocking my door or something. It, this is me being like really out there. But me like walking up to my house and using my mind to unlock the door. Or it's so different than you doing that on your phone. You know, the phone may be able to you know unlock your car door rather than use a key or look something on Google rather than you opening an encyclopedia. You know what I mean? Like you're able to do things faster. But I don't think it's gonna be this whole thing of like oh my god, people are gonna be so like don't get me wrong. I do think smartphones have made people dumber, but not in the same way as like oh my God, people just can't take in information. I think people are just more confident on their access to the information than they are on their own means of being able to articulate the info. Like I said, I feel you can feel very confident in terms of looking something up on Google and going, here's, this is what it is. Even though like you may not have known that and maybe before you would have had to look it up in an encyclopedia and most people may not have done that. Or if you did do that, maybe you find and acquire a lot more information. But I think it's more on par with that where we'd be doing things that we otherwise would be doing anyway, but it's just a bit faster and a bit more of a high throughput. Like I said, as opposed to me going to the library, like here's a perfect example, perfect example. So people always say, go to the library, read a book. Well, people say that because libraries are full of information and the books are there, but that's sort of an outdated concept. You can go on Google and look up anything that you can find in the library, but before you have to get up, go to the library, go to the back section, use the Dewey Decimal System, open up an encyclopedia, read it all up. Now you just open it up on Google. And I think the same sort of thing is going to happen in network capacity where you may just access the internet for some information you need. Boom, I got it. I use it. 
And I think AI encompassed with that just makes it easier for people to interface with the information and access that information. So it's not like some AI is going to be just, oh, all seeing everything. You may go sort of in the same way we go to Google. Hey, AI, hey, computer, whatever. Uh, can you tell me about X, Y, and Z? And it tells you about X, Y, and Z. And then, you're like, okay, cool. Now I can operate off that information the same way I would just Google it or the same way, like in the 70s, I'd go to the library and open up an encyclopedia. Like, <laughs> Spot on, Quincy. Sorry. I was laughing in the background and I was also reading this question. But before we do that, guys, we got exactly 600 live listeners. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Quincy, for making time for us. Show us some love. Smash that like button. Quincy, you do have your own YouTube channel and people seem to be yep. asking that a lot. So can you just remind people, where can they find you on YouTube? Yeah. So you guys can go to my YouTube channel, Coin Club Quincy. I talk about basically all the topics I talk here. I like to break down certain aspects of blockchain technology, but also just technology as a whole. Uh, I try to make it very simple and easy for people to understand as well as like dive into other broader concepts, like what brings value to a blockchain network, what brings value to a cryptocurrency, what are the purposes of cryptocurrency, what would you do if your cryptocurrency wasn't worth anything, what can these networks be operated for? And it's really more about the technology than it is about the finance. Although I do break down certain aspects of how you can automate certain aspects of the finance but i typically mostly focus on how can we utilize these technologies to build a better world as opposed to oh what's going to happen next with you know traditional crypto finance oh price or whatever i like to focus on what can these technology be used for as well as talk about the things that i'm using them for and the things i see other people use them for so yeah you can go check me out on youtube coin club quincy uh same thing on twitter i'm like coin club quincy on uh on twitter and um yeah you can go to my youtube channel i talk about a lot of different things i'm actually gonna be dropping a video tomorrow i'm trying i usually try to drop videos weekly uh, i've been super busy the late, last few months but i've gotten back into videos i've got like three or four videos ready to launch uh, these next coming weeks so i'll be dropping videos weekly uh and talking about a lot of different things uh as i drop those videos and, and go into them so quincy last question i have for you on ai and then i'm gonna close the interview with a little personal questions and in, in a good way one of the things i constantly think about is the replacement of jobs when it comes to ai and you referenced it briefly in the beginning of the show but right now in america there's 40 million truck drivers and many of these truck drivers make over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per year now i do believe over the next decade we're going to see a slow migration away from truck drivers and into automated driving vehicles but we're also going to see a revolution of the fast food industry, many other industries, finance, doctors, anything you want to name. There's going to be an AI product that can either increase it, which means enhance the human doing it, or completely replace the person currently doing that job. So my follow-up question to that is, one, do you believe that will happen? And two, is the only way to combat that giving people free money like a UBI? Because to, to tell everyone they need to re-educate themselves, it's something a lot of people are just not willing to do. Yeah. So here's what, here's what I see is happening. And this is the best way I can equate it. So back in like the twenties, you could have been some random dude off the street, working in some library, building cars and assembly line. And you're, you know, putting in your spring, putting in your screw and the next guy comes in. But as technology has progressed now, in order to be working in that same assembly line, you've got to be like this engineer with like a master's degree, you know, some Tesla line somewhere. doesn't mean the job is different. You're really technically doing the same job that that guy in the assembly line is, but you're probably managing a lot of different systems that actually uh, interact with whatever that, you know, component or piece is. I think that's going to be more similar to what we see now. Like one example I like to see or that I see all the time is if you go to a grocery store or go to Walmart, instead of the uh, regular checkout, you see the self-checkout, but it's not like they just completely got rid of self, like, you know, uh, cashiers. Now you have one person who's managing all these self-checkout systems and essentially maybe fixing the machines, putting them back together. The job changed, 
used, even though it's the same job. Now, I think when it comes to like autonomous cars or autonomous vehicles, you may see instead of people driving these cars, you may end up seeing like a uh, a car, like, you know, there's air traffic controllers. You might yeah. have car traffic controllers. So instead of being the one driving the car, you may be running some broader infrastructure that's tracking each car where it's going, tracking like their accidents, try like, and you may just be just a general person managing these systems. And it may take a higher level of, uh, of education to be able to do so, but it doesn't change the fact that the job is just changing. It's just changing in a way in which instead of actively doing the job, like I said, like the cashier, the self-checkout's doing the, you know, doing the job, but they still have to fix the machines. They have to manage the machines. They have to manage multiple machines. It's just, it's becoming more of a systems management job. Like I said, like, you know, from somebody putting in the screw or putting in the, the spring or whatever in an assembly line to, you know, some Tesla engineer who's on the computer managing these robots that are putting all these pieces together. These jobs are just becoming more technically demanding. And I think what's going to end up happening is these jobs won't go away. Now, they may be consolidated. So instead of like 2 million truck drivers, you may see half a million, you know, car traffic controllers or whatever, uh, whatever it may be. They may be consolidated. Because like I said, you may need one Tesla engineer as opposed to 100 guys in an assembly line that are putting these uh, putting these pieces together. But um, I think you may see a consolidation in how these jobs operate and a more technically demanding, uh, these jobs may be more technically demanding in managing these systems. Now, I forgot what your second question was. Uh, can you remind me again? What was my second question? Oh, will they have to give people UBI in order to combat everyone losing their jobs? Yeah. So the biggest thing with UBI that I think is sort of an issue, it's it's basically the whole like printing money problem. The second you introduce new money into, into a, an economy, uh, now that you have more money chasing less goods, the inflation will just price that out. And I think actually that would actually do worse for the people who need it uh, than it would better because now like you know, if you're making $100,000 a year and UBI increases the price of your grocery bill by like 10%, that means nothing to you because everything's being priced in. But if you could barely afford groceries and you got UBI and now you can, now it's even more expensive because you have more dollars facing few goods. I don't necessarily think that's going to help. Now I could think there could be an element of not quite UBI, but you may start seeing people move towards essentially these passive income streams. Not that it's like a government passive income stream. You may see people focusing on taking excess capital and focusing on I don't want to say necessarily like dividends or things like that, but you may see people focusing on moving their capital to things that generate revenue passively. Uh, but I don't think that's necessarily UBI. I think you just may see more investment vehicles that focus on allowing people to accumulate wealth in some other means. And that's a great idea. They should play that on CNBC whenever they try to promote why we need universal basic income. You just explained how it hurts the people that they're trying to protect. But Quincy, our last crypto question for today is, Quincy, can you describe the relationship between centralization and decentralization in the real world adoption of crypto? It seems this topic is very misunderstood. And if there's anybody yeah. who can answer that question, this is the man. So the floor is yours. Yeah. So decentralization, like I said earlier, is a tool. So this tool allows for everybody to engage with each other in some level of some level of equitability, as opposed to with traditional centralized systems. Like when you look at finance, in order for me to have access to different finance instruments, I may need a broker and that broker may need to have access to an exchange or some other broker dealer or some other party to be able to allow them access to these assets or some level of productivity. In terms of the tool, decentralization allows for everybody to be able to interact with each other in a simple means without having to rely on a central party to do so. But that doesn't mean centralization goes out the window. What happens is, is you're just going to have these little cogs and points of centralized entities doing whatever they're otherwise doing while allowing 
uh, access to a decentralized system that have, that allows them to have access to all these parties that they wouldn't have otherwise have access to because they would have had to go through individual centralized parties to do so. So you're able to essentially maximize your engagement with decentralization, but it doesn't change the fact that there will be centralized parties doing their own thing. They will be operating in their own capacity, but now they can interact with everybody rather than trying to find uh, a specific person uh, or a specific broker, a specific whatever entity to be able to find them access to those to those people, whether it's finance, whether it's apps. Like I said, like in terms of finance, I may need a broker to be able to have access to certain assets. In terms of apps, I may need to go interact with that other company's API or their developers to allow for some level of interoperability or go through AWS and they essentially have a means of interacting with different APIs. But with the blockchain, I could just interact with that dApp directly or interact with that app directly as opposed to having to go through a central uh, like repository or party to be able to interact with those. Finance, dApps, data, it just allows for a more equitable means of accessing the maximum amount of parties you could engage with. But those parties are probably still going to be centralized to some degree, simply based on the notion that people run their enterprises in a means in which they're able to be the ones who run them as opposed to this autonomous notion. Now, I do think there's a difference between decentralization and full autonomy or fully autonomous applications or whatever it may be. And that's a completely different the completely different thing because a fully autonomous application is an application or a fully autonomous entity is an entity that's running entirely by itself without anybody using it. Where decentralization is just a means of being able to have equitable access to some set of tools without essentially having to go through someone to get access to those tools. Like I said, with, with trade finance or when it comes to accessing assets, anybody with access to the internet can access any asset on any of these blockchains where before in order to interact with a specific asset, they would have to find a broker. And like I said, with APIs, now I can just tag or execute other applications directly rather than having to go to the party themselves to allow for some level of interoperability. Absolutely. And Quincy, this is the last question I have for you in relationship to crypto. And I know I just said that before, but when do you believe the institutions will adopt XDC? I'm not asking for a hard date here, but when you're seeing the development behind the scenes, clearly they are progressing in a particular direction. What direction do you believe that is? And, and when do you see institutions leveraging this technology? Actually, we're seeing it happen every day. One of the biggest things that you don't see is people essentially making decisions in their own personal lives every day, whether these are new startups deciding to utilize these technologies to build some level of productivity or service, whether these are already traditional entities utilizing these technologies to be able to have access to other entities globally. Um, but we see this every day and I can't get too into it. But the biggest thing is there are more people out there. I wouldn't say more people. Actually, no, there are more people out there who are constantly adopting not just XTC, but blockchain technologies than there are people who are advertising it. And you see what I mean? They're yep. like the ones that advertise it. You may see like the top five, 10 advertisers, but there could very easily be hundreds, not thousands of people utilizing these technologies in a multitude of different ways. And even sometimes utilizing these technologies in uh, ways that you otherwise wouldn't be able to directly interact with them. Like I've seen a lot of different entities or a lot of different institutions use these technologies as backend accounting systems. And they're just using this as a means of being able to offset the cost of running some level of infrastructure while simultaneously allowing some level of accessibility between different parties. But you may never know that. You may just go, yeah, I'd like to, you know, get this statement on this service, please. And that service may be operating off the blockchain, but you wouldn't know, but they're essentially using, utilizing that technology to increase some level of engagement or productivity for their services. Um, and like I said, they more people are doing this and not talking about it because, well, they kind of don't need to. Then there are people that are advertising, buy this, sell this, blah, 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 this, this. And I think you see that focus more towards retail rather, because that's another thing too. Like, like you wouldn't know what cloud service provider you're, uh, what company that you're using, like if you're going to a random website, 
like it doesn't matter to you if it's running on AWS no. or Azure or Google Cloud. It means nothing to you, but it means everything to them, you know, in terms of how they're able to essentially run their business. It's the same sort of thing here. And yeah, you might have like, you know, one company that's like, oh, we're running on AWS. Look how great. And most like most of them never do that. But I think that's the same thing that's going to happen with blockchain. The only difference is because uh, retail can very easily invest in a lot of these services. There's a huge incentive for people who are selling things on blockchain to be able to advertise what blockchain they're selling it on to allow people to be able to gravitate towards that served as a product. Fascinating. So Quincy, let me ask you a couple of personal questions here. What are your goals for yourself as an individual? I know that you're a developer in the space now, but clearly you have a lot of charisma. You're able to communicate extremely well. And you just said you're only 26. What are some long-term goals you have? Maybe you haven't thought about this, put it out in the public. What is something that you're working towards in the long-term? Where do you see yourself in 10 or 15 years? I'm actually working on, I'm actually working on a few tools to be able to help, uh, I'm working on a few tools to be able to help developers be able to build applications on blockchain, but I also want to be able to utilize those tools to be able to run my own my own apps, my own startups, and my own means of like, I, I actually have a few ideas in terms of like running my own startup and running my own app. And I do anticipate of being able to utilize the tools that I build not only for XDC uh, and not only just for the broader crypto network, but being able to maximally, maximally use those tools to create really, really cool and interesting services. Uh, and one tool I'm working on now is called Contract Interface Model Language, but it's basically a simple means in which uh, you can create a simple file that can create uh, multiple interfaces on multiple devices. So you can have one file of data that can compile an app onto iOS, Android, web, uh, uh, VR even potentially. And you have one file as opposed to writing different codes for different uh, platforms while simultaneously allowing one device or one app to be able to interact with every single app on the blockchain potentially. Um, and I wanna be able to create a set of different like smart contract tools in which it makes it easier for people to be able to build on the blockchain, but at the same time, utilize these tools to allow people to interact with interesting services that I find interesting. And I hope to, in the next like year or so, maybe a few years, uh, be able to launch my own application and be able to launch my own startup that is able to utilize these tools to the maximum degree to allow people to be able to uh, engage with these applications in a way that they wouldn't be able to before. Um, and that's sort of something I'm sort of looking forward to uh, in the next few years. Awesome. And anybody who's watching on, on YouTube right now, we're showing you Quincy's Twitter account and go follow him right now. He's already over 60,000 followers, puts out phenomenal content. Also, the YouTube is linked down below. But Quincy, one of the things I wanted you to understand, want to understand from your perspective is, are you optimistic about the future? We talk to a lot of older people in the space. You're a younger guy. I'd love to connect with you on this front. When you look out and you look into the 2030s and beyond, are you optimistic about this technology painting a better picture for the general public? Or what do you see as a 26-year-old living in America? Yeah, in terms of like how blockchain, I think, so I will say this, it may not be super popular of an opinion. I sort of think we're in a little bit of a blockchain bubble right now, uh, mostly because people are really more hyped on the notion of the value being created than they are actually creating value. And I think we're sort of in a, and this isn't a bad thing, don't get me wrong, every single tech bubble, every single technology has had some element of some overinflated aspect to it. I think the only overinflated aspect to blockchain right now is that people are more focused on the idea of making money than they are on the idea of creating some level of productivity that's sustainable. And I think if that idea, if I think if that idea were to waver, you may essentially see a little bit of like a crypto recession. Cause like I said, if you're buying, if you're buying a token for the sole purpose of it going up, well, the second you don't believe it's going to go up, you're going to see everybody sell. And I don't necessarily think that's a sustainable form of crypto. But as you start seeing crypto mature and you start seeing people build more sustainable products, more sustainable services, more sustainable demand for some economic output, I think you'll see a rapid growth in a way you've never seen before. Like we saw the dot-com bubble in the early 2000s, but 
uh, after that, we started seeing a bunch of websites like Amazon and, and Facebook and even like started going in, going into apps uh, on the iPhone and smartphones and stuff. Um, that, but that's the thing, like that doesn't change the fact that people were overly excited for like silly applications or silly websites like pet.com or some of these other things too. But just because those things exist doesn't mean it's going to, it's going to inhibit the ability for these technologies to be used for some level of productivity. And that's really my main goal is if you're able to create a sustainable form of productivity on these networks, sustainable services, sustainable economic growth, uh, you will see growth, actually rapid growth over time. But I think right now we're sort of in this idea of, Oh, if it makes money, I'll buy it. But the second that idea disappears, I think you're going to see a bit of a, a little bit of a meltdown. But that's not a bad thing, actually. I think that's more of like the, uh, oh, what's it called? Like separating like the, uh, what is it called? It's like setting, separating like the best from the worst or whatever, or, or a means of being able to allow the best to rise to the top based off some level of productivity. Yeah. Where I feel like a lot of them right now are mostly focused on speculation, which isn't a bad thing. Um, but I think it can get a little out of hand and that's sort of where we're at. So we got about five minutes left in the interview. I'll close this thing off before two hours. So we got 500 people joining us. Show us some love, smash that like button. Again, thank you, Quincy, for making time for us today. One of the things I wanted to ask you, and this is a more, more, um, I don't know if it's instigating, but what projects do you believe have the most value and which projects do you believe have the biggest red flags? We often talk about which projects you think are going to have the best price targets, but I know Solana has been down over 14 times. We've got Chainlink, a couple other projects with some red flags around it. Is there any that you look at from a development standpoint that you say, when I read into the technicals, this isn't a good project? I don't want to necessarily say, I'm not going to be the one to, to determine what's a good project or not. Obviously, anything that basically is coming off as a scam that doesn't really provide any sort of uh, economic sustainability and it's entirely predicated off speculators getting in, I don't necessarily think it's a great project. But one thing, and it's going to be a huge freaking, uh, like, people get mad about this, but I don't necessarily think that we're going to end up seeing Bitcoin be the biggest project that we see in the space as is. It's not because it's a terrible project. I just don't think it has the means of being able to scale some level of economic productivity. People say it's based off internet money, but no one's using it for that. People are actively use it. People are actively demanding Bitcoin to essentially sell or send Bitcoin to people and use it as money. Maybe you see that economic uh, activity, but I don't necessarily think we see it. I think we're primarily focused on speculators. And I think that's sort of the biggest problem of the space as a whole. Um, but the biggest thing is, I think there's a lot of other technologies out there that can really much take the cake in terms of being able to create some level of sustainable demand. Uh, and I don't necessarily see that in Bitcoin. I know it's a very controversial take. I actually had a whole back and forth with David Swartz on Twitter about it. Uh, but the biggest thing is, uh, until we start seeing some level of uh, sustainable economic um, growth within these networks, I don't know if we're going to see I don't know if we're going to see uh, BTC be the big cheese uh, going forward in terms of when you start seeing these more economic, economically viable technologies move and create a level of uh, productivity. I love that, Quincy. So we're going to play this short clip here, and then we're going to close it out with you filling us, our listeners in on the conversation you have with David Schwartz. This is Jack Myers, former, current, and future Bitcoin maximalist, talking about why he's betting on this country because the Federal Reserve is collapsing the U.S. dollar. So we're going to let this short clip play and go to Quincy. Here we go. Like the government's going to tell me how the dollar is inflating based on a basket of instruments. Like my Netflix subscription or my Caesar salad doesn't actually tell me how well the dollar is doing or how much it's being devalued. Miami real estate does. Bitcoin does. Bitcoin's up over 50% this year. Yeah. You're telling me that the dollar's not inflating? You're out of your mind. I'm not listening to that. The, the, the Fed and the whole monetary system is based on trust, and they constantly, they constantly make, uh, break that trust. It'd be the equivalent of there's a fire outside of my house. I smell the smoke, and someone's telling me, no, 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 it's just a bunch of teenagers putting on a bonfire. 
okay, but I hear one one siren. I hear one police siren. Yeah. Are you sure it's a bonfire? Yeah, yeah, it's a bonfire. Now I hear 10 sirens, 100 sirens. Now my whole community is running out. I'm not going to get up and look outside the window, Kelly, and see what's going on. I don't believe them for a second. You've got to be absolutely crazy to believe the Federal Reserve right now. Let's pause it there, Quincy. Open floor, my friend. How do you feel about those bold statements? Yeah, I don't think so. You can sort of notice that everything he said doesn't even go into the economic viability of Bitcoin as itself. And he just basically comes into this broader idea of, oh, my God, everything's on fire. The U.S. economy, blah, blah, blah. Um, and yeah, sure, you can have your opinions about that. But I don't really think he went really deep into what those things were. I think he sort of just went into this notion of, well, you know, the economy shit. So buy Bitcoin. And look how high Bitcoin went, therefore buy Bitcoin. And yeah. I don't think that's essentially a good, like, that's not an economic argument for why this is going to be sustainable um, outside of the notion that as long as people believe this, it may continue on going. But like I said, what happens when the idea disappears? Just like he sort of said that the banking system is based off trust. Well, I'd say a lot of crypto right now is based off the idea of making money. And the second that idea disappears, I think we're going to see a meltdown. Um, and like I said, if you think you're going to make money and you buy the token, then you're going to hold on to it. But if you don't think you're going to make money anymore and everyone thinks that at the same time, just like everyone you know, left the banks at, uh, at, at Silicon Valley Bank, as soon as everyone essentially uh, shifts their way of thinking on something, you're going to see a little bit of a meltdown. Now, the difference between like the banking system and, and these different crypto uh, economies is that I think there's a little bit more of a actual level of productivity being attributed to these systems, not to like, you know, sit here and defend the dollar or whatever. But the biggest thing is, is there's some level of value that's actually being grown in some capacity being the U.S. economy, where I feel like right now we're just stuck in the speculator land right now. Now, that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing, but I don't think that's an argument for why, why you know, Bitcoin is going to be better, you know? Yeah. So what were some of your biggest takeaways from your conversation with David Schwartz in relation to Bitcoin? We didn't preface this before the show, so this is all news to me. What are some of the things that I should be aware of as well as our listeners? Yeah. So uh, I actually put out a post was it yesterday or two days ago. Um, I basically said, all right, guys, I want the smoke. Come hit me with it. Uh, and I basically let out two uh, arguments for, it's not even really an argument. They're more of like technical, technological viability concerns for Bitcoin. Um, and that's like every network has technological viability concerns. This isn't the problem. Bitcoin's problem is uh, in terms of the amount of the amount it costs to run the network is going to continuously increase based off the hash rate. And because of that, it means the price also needs to increase with that to be able to make it profitable for the miners to uh, be able to engage or be able to mine more Bitcoin because, you know, what's the point of mining Bitcoin if you're not making any money? And my really biggest concern, I had two big concerns, but one of my biggest concerns were on one hand, if if the amount of, if the cost to run the network's going up and the price of the token is also going up, if we were to see a giant margin call or a giant sell-off, you may see the price of the token drop to the point to where it's no longer profitable for a majority of the uh, node operators to continuously uh, you know, continuously mining Bitcoin. And you may see a huge consolidation of the network based off of a ton of miners turning their turning their mining uh, rigs off because of how expensive it is to run it. And in that case, anything that could cause a huge liquidation or a huge um, uh, drop in price of the, uh, of, of, the, of the token Bitcoin could potentially cause a huge consolidation of the network, which could basically put it at risk for 51% attack. And then on the other end of that, well, if, and the best way I like to put it this way to make it really simple is if I could if I could run Bitcoin on a laptop, you know, run a Bitcoin miner on a laptop in 2009, but now I need a giant server, uh, you know, farming institution or whatever to be able to run uh, a competitive mining rig to mine that Bitcoin. Is there a hypothetical or theoretical point in which 
the amount, and it's, this this all goes based off of the amount of demand for the hash rate and how many people are participating in mining that uh, in mining that Bitcoin. But as more people are familiar with Bitcoin, use Bitcoin, build apps, uh, run full nodes, there's gonna be more miners too, as at least more people incentivized to be miners. And is there a hypothetical point in which, like I said, in 2009, you can run a Bitcoin miner on a laptop. 2023, you essentially need a giant mining rig server. Is there a theoretical point where it just keeps on going in which the local uh, infrastructure of these different mining nodes aren't going to be able to handle it? And in that case, uh, there's sort of an incentive for whoever can essentially hold out the longest or have the most robust infrastructure. Maybe it'll also consolidate the network based off that. Now, the biggest thing that uh, the biggest thing that uh, David Swartz said, which is a very good point in both regards, is he believes that. The, uh, the means of being able to scale down the difficulty will adjust accordingly, but the difficulty adjusts every two weeks. So there's an element of what happens if the price crashes or let's say something happens really, really quickly in which the network can't adjust adequately enough. There may be a window in terms of the network can potentially be consolidated. Uh, and we ended up going back and forth on that point. Uh, one of the biggest things that he sort of, I consider this as like hand signal shadows or whatever, because uh, one of the big things he ended up telling me was, and this is sort of really interesting is, is it would essentially be like these whoever would actually try to take control of the network would have to take would have to do so at a huge loss. So they would essentially have to be the ones to either hold out the longest uh, and essentially you know try not to blow their electrical grid, or essentially if the price dropped too low, they're just burning money in the hopes that everybody else shuts off their miners uh, before uh, the difficulty can adjust. Um, but then the, he sort of went into this notion of yeah you know uh, that wouldn't necessarily be a good thing unless you had a way to hedge against it. I mean, if you were trying to uh, short against Bitcoin, that could essentially be an incentive for someone to essentially try to take the network over because the idea would be, let's say I took out $100 million with the Bitcoin shorts, and then I essentially try to take over the network. So I you know, take out $100 million with the Bitcoin, Bitcoin crashes to 20 cents, and then I pay back, you know, pay that Bitcoin back. And, you know, there you go. Cents. Hopefully he's not listening because he could steal your plan, Quincy. That's a great <laughs> idea. Right but um, no, no, he literally is like, and I mean, like he was being a little bit more like tongue in cheek with it. But he's like, yeah, unless somebody had like some idea to essentially short the Bitcoin network, there's no real reason to try to do that. And I also brought up the point that and even Gary Gensler said this himself when he was a professor at MIT, that they believe and not just Gary, but a lot of different state agencies believe that there may potentially be state actors um, essentially participating in this mining process. And this could be actually a problem in two different ways. One, in China, um, one, they could have essentially every economic uh, incentive to try to essentially cause a economic downfall in the economies that are heavily involved in Bitcoin while simultaneously banning it in their own countries. Also, and on the other end, if people are going to continuously uh, fight against each other to mine the Bitcoin, at some point, if there are state actors essentially mining Bitcoin, only the state actors are going to be able to be competitive because they're just going to flip the cost of the electricity onto their taxpayers. And you, if you're a company, you can't, you can't compete with that. A subsidized means of mining, and don't get me wrong, like, you can go into the arguments of why they would do that, but it just, I mean, it just sounds like corruption at that point. Yeah, let me have the taxpayers pay for the mining so I can profit off the Bitcoin and whatever. But this isn't my argument. My argument is entirely predicated off what Gary's previously said in his, uh, and he has a, uh, he has a whole, he has the entire semester of, uh, of his course on, of, at MIT on YouTube. But um, if there are to be state actors that are engaging uh, in this mining process, the entire set of incentives to be able to run the network or the incentives to take over the network are entirely different than if these were just private actors. And like I said, uh, China's already been known to be able to consolidate, I think, what was it, 60% of the hash rate already? And then there's sort of an element of like, oh no, like how much of them are like actually like miners and how much of them are sort of just like, 
under threat by the CPP in a sense, because that's sort of a thing already in, in general. If you're a company or if you're some sort of operation in China, if you become so big, you have to essentially register with the uh, CCP. So there are other concerns in that regard. But the biggest question is, if there were to be state actors, what incentives would there be to be able to continuously mine uh, basically infinitely until other people can't do it anymore? Or would there be essentially an incentive to short the Bitcoin network, try to essentially go after the notion of, and I think it's all based off a of price fall. The price falls like 80% in two days. It takes a little bit for the network to adjust. Now, some people have said, well, that just means the block times are going to be super slow and it'll be the network will be really slow. And I'm like, yeah, sure. But that also means that there's going to be a huge consolidation in the hash rate until it speeds up again, which could be a, a bit of an issue. Now, these are just concerns that I may have. Uh, a lot of people essentially just go, oh, you don't understand how Bitcoin works, whatever. And I'm perfectly fine with being wrong. But the problem is, if I'm right, I think we may end up seeing one of the greatest economic disasters basically instituted based off of a technical flaw or a lack of a viability in one of these networks. Now, don't get me wrong. Other networks have viability issues. The only difference is they're just they don't scale up this way. So most networks as a whole, the price of the token of that network, whether it's XRP, XCC, what I mean, it's technically not XRP, but most of these other networks, um, they essentially need a price to be a certain price point for the node operators to continuously be profitable. But that's the thing, though, the average master node or staking node or whatever it has a fixed cost because they're running like two or three servers to run this node. And after that price is uh, increased, uh, increased to a certain point, um, they're going to remain profitable. And then these node operators are actually in the same boat that a lot of investors and speculators are in, in which they're accumulating more and more of these tokens by running these nodes in the hope that, you know, whatever that hypothetical price may be, uh, uh, over, you know, it, it increases past that point in which now they would be continuously profitable as well as the holdings that they previously have, uh, attained that are also profitable. Like I said, but most of the networks don't have that scaling issue. That is interesting because like you talk in an optimistic tone. If somebody came in and said that in like a negative way, the, the negativity you described about why the Bitcoin collapse may be inevitable, I've never heard somebody describe it like that before. So after the show, I'm going to be rewatching this episode and really dissecting what you just said. But the impending collapses, that's a serious concern. You just painted the entire picture of not only how we're going to get there, but what the downfall is really going to be. So shout out to you, man. That's phenomenal. Yeah, it's a, I would be incredibly scared. The biggest thing would come down to really two questions. And this isn't just a network viability one. It comes down to who is Satoshi because Satoshi could just do a huge sell-off that could basically induce all of this. And two, who are the major mining players? Like, look, if a good portion of the miners are in China, it wouldn't be very difficult for China to try to pull something off, uh, pull something like this off in either direction. And let's say none of that was a concern. You know, Satoshi's never coming out. China's not consolidating the network. Well, as there's more demand for, as there's more demand for the hash rate, as people get more involved in Bitcoin and there are more miners, is there that hypothetical uh, technological point in which some miner often some, you know, you know, some crazy, it could be whatever the infrastructure, but if some miner has a better infrastructure uh, than some of these other miners, um, is it possible that they can just hold out while you start seeing these other miners just blow the grid? As well as essentially, that doesn't even go into the problem of uh, what happens if energy costs rise. What if there's a spike in energy costs? That could cause the exact same thing just in the other direction, you know? It's unbelievable. And you know what it reminds me of? Yesterday, we were having a discussion about why they allow that Jack Ma, I don't know how to say his last name, Myers, I believe. Why do they let him come on CNBC and promote these things with this hood on? And I, it, it really reminds me of the FTX situation where they promoted Sam Bankman-Fried as the JP Morgan of our generation. Me and you specifically, Quincy, right? We're both under 30. So this is what's interesting. He was promoted as the guy who's going to be the savior for people like us. And they only used him to promote the, the downfall of these markets. Now he's being used as a representative as to why things are so chaotic and why things are so out of order. We put the hands in somebody who is a complete lunatic. And we had guys like Gary Gensler and the president of the United States openly working with them in Congress 
it's unbelievable. So when you talk about a coordinated attack on Bitcoin, I think that's kind of the same concept, just with a different product. We saw it with FTX. You kind of described how it could go down with Bitcoin. And I just wanted to add to there. So really to close this out for this episode, I'd just love to give you a chance. Can you remind our listeners where they can find you on all platforms? And then we'll close it out. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and find me on YouTube, uh, both at Coin Club Quincy. I make videos all the time, basically explaining everything I've explained here, going into different concepts, uh, diving into the developer's perspective of blockchain as a whole. That doesn't mean I'm right about everything, but I do have a unique perspective and I'm always willing to learn. So uh, yeah, you can find me on YouTube, find me on Twitter, Coin Club Quincy, and uh, that's that. Thank you so much, Quincy. And I would like to formally invite you on the show again. We'd love to have you on for another episode, maybe in a couple of months or whenever you have the time. You're always invited on our show and we love seeing you in the live chat. So I just want to say thank you while I'm on the air. Thank you, Quincy. Much appreciated. And we'll love to collaborate again. But guys, we've got 465 live listeners joining us. Show us some love. Smash that like button. And we're going to close this show out the same way we always do. Warriors, rise. Get your shit together, baby. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Quincy. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.